Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is back, and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode and catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Good morning, everybody. It is 10 o'clock straight up in the Delaware Valley, along with Mike Sealski. I'm Glenn Mack now on a, uh, geez, a dreary Saturday. It's warm today. Going to get up to 71. Raining right now. Rain will clear. Maybe come back this afternoon. How are you, Mike Sealski? I'm doing great, Mr. Good. Mack now. Good, good, good. We got a lot to talk about today, and we start with this. We are now 40 hours, I think, past the first Phillies game, six hours until the second. I will uh, join a bandwagon that I've heard others say, so I'm not the first to say it. Why the hell did they take yesterday off? Good question. You wait all this time for baseball. You get baseball on, you know, on uh, Thursday, and then it's like Friday, no baseball. Not liking it. Not liking it. It would have been nice to have uh... – a Phillies game to watch last night. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but they are back today, 4 o'clock. Zach Wheeler against that Nate Avalde uh, down in Texas. All right, Mike. So the first game was encouraging in some ways, discouraging in other ways. Uh, they put up a lot of runs. That's a good thing. I thought they were going to be the greatest team in Major League Baseball history because the so first you, four innings of that game. So you post that thing. Yeah. I thought we'd have a show. All right. They, pay, they play 162, so I don't want to take away too much out of any one game. Uh, that you play in March, actually. I guess they finished March 0-1. Yeah, how about it? Okay. Terrible month. Right. It's not football, so you don't get too carried away. But the big focus, rightfully, um, has been on Aaron Nola, the perennial opening day starter who was cruising along until he wasn't. When have we heard this before? Throughout Aaron Nola's career, uh, even during the best of times, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a performance that Phillies fans have seen a lot of uh, and we're going to get into this, but I've actually crunched the numbers on this. I, I took out my Ray Dittinger Memorial oh, Yellow yeah. Eagle pad. New analytical tool. And uh, looked at how often this happens to Aaron Nola, and uh, it ain't good. All right, well, I, and let, let's, yeah, we will get into that very soon. Let's talk about Nola. Um, the discussion last week was that this team and Nola halted their contract negotiations until the end of the season. Should the team commit to what's likely to be a five, six year deal at $30 million a year. And Nola remains one of the most baffling players I've ever seen in Philly's red. His, his numbers his analytical. I don't even say it. I hate the word. His, his, his stats. secondary stats, his yeah. stats and the secondary stats are true. They're great. They're always great. Um, they just don't translate into wins for some reason. Last year, he had the best strikeout to walk ratio in the National League. Mm-hmm. That's like a should be a very telling stat. Absolutely should. Pitches a lot of innings. Pitches a ton. But I think he's pitched more innings than any starter in baseball since whatever it was twenty eighteen or you something. You can put him down for thirty two starts in an one hundred and sixty two game season pretty much every year. Yeah, but really, he's like 
he's in a way like Reese Hoskins in which he's he he's when he's great he's great and then when he's not he's just he's just terrible and and in fact he has the same relationship with fans um I want to get to your the numbers you talked about in just a second he had a – well, you, you go to that first, actually. All right. That, so, that, we can do something else. So we could have – you could have gone and done this throughout the entirety of Nola's career ever since he debuted in 2015. I don't have that kind of time. So what I did was I looked at his 32 regular season starts last year, mm-hmm. and I took all the starts in which he allowed at least three earned runs. Now, that's a relatively low bar. A, a pitcher could go six or seven innings and allowed, allow three earned runs – and that could be a really good start. It could be a win. He could go three innings and allow three runs and seven hits, and it would be a terrible start. So some of this is arbitrary. Point being, through those 32 starts total that he made last year, I found eight of them, a full quarter of his starts, could be characterized in the same way that we saw what happened opening day, which is to say he pitches really, really well for a long time, and then has one mushroom cloud of an inning. So this is what happened opening day, where he's cruising for three innings, and then all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. is a common thing. Phillies fans are not conjuring this out of their imaginations. Uh, There were eight times last year, uh, games where he allows one run through six innings and then gives up three in the top of the seventh. He's scoreless through five and then gives up five runs in the sixth. That's happening, and I think the challenge for the Phillies now is not only it seems like you can't, they can't figure out and Nola can't figure out how to stop that from happening, mm-hmm. but the conditions have changed now in all the things we're seeing with baseball that are going to make it even harder for him to figure this out. Yep. So that's where we are right now, which is, which is the impact of the pitching clock, right? That's what we're talking mm-hmm. about here. So exactly, Major League Baseball has stats for everything, of course. And here's a number: um, in the last five seasons, when men were on base, Arenola averaged 26, 27 seconds between pitches. Mm-hmm. They actually have that stat. That's uh, God bless the person who counts that. Yeah, really. Um, he takes a breath. He walks up the mound. He picks up the rosin bag. He walks. He thinks about it. He needs to adapt. Uh, and I get it. And he talked about that a lot during spring training, clearly on his mind. Yeah. And he had a poor spring training. We can get into in, in a little bit whether that's because of how many innings he pitched last year or not. I normally don't take spring training very seriously, but these conditions were different. He said he needs to get used to it. He needs to figure out how to slow down. And, um, I mean, I think they all need to, to, to figure out how to slow down. I'm going to give you a Matt Gelb um, talk to uh, JT Real Muto after the game. Mm-hmm. And Real Muto said, with the pitch clock, you can't ever slow the pitcher down. It's crazy. Once an offense gets rolling and the pitcher gets on the ropes a little bit, it's really hard. You have to make a pitch quickly to get an out because momentum is going to be huge now with how fast things happen and the pitcher not being able to get a breath in. Okay, Real mm-hmm. Muto was quick to say, "Look, I'm not saying this is an excuse, but this is kind of where we're headed. This is the new reality." Yeah, yeah. and that's the, Noah has always, as you said, been like three up, three down, three up, three down, three up, three down. Fifth, sixth inning, boom. Yeah, it falls in, and when he gets guys on base, he becomes a different pitcher. And now that he can't do what he has always done, 
I look, it is one start. I'll clarify mm-hmm. that. You know, it's baseball, 162 games. He's going to get 32, 34 starts this year. So I'm not trying to make a grand statement. But I'm curious if you think that has an impact on him and it's something he's going to have to learn to deal with that he never has before. Well, I think the person who put this in the right perspective was the Phillies pitching coach, Caleb Coffin, who said after the game to reporters, I don't know if it hurt him, meaning the pitch clock, but it probably didn't help. And I think that's the way to look at this right now. What we saw in that first game from Aaron Nola is something that we have seen before from Aaron Nola. Mm-hmm. So you can't necessarily say, oh, it's the pitch clock, and once he gets used to that, this will all be fixed. The problem is the fact that there is this pitch clock disrupting his rhythm, changing the way he likes to pitch, to me, it's a concern because it's going to make it that much harder for him to adjust, to avoid the kind of situations that we saw opening day. Mm-hmm. And it is something to, to be concerned about. And I think in time, throughout baseball, this will all sort itself out. Pitchers will figure things out. Hitters will figure things out. But for right now, you got to go, okay, the Phillies are going to have probably have to live through Aaron Nola figuring this out and maybe getting hit around a little bit. Last year with bases empty, he held opponents to a 543 OPS. Mm-hmm. That's Sandy Koufax. Yeah, that, that's, that's great. That's, that's you know perennial Cy Young Award winner. Uh, with men on base, it rose to 719. Now, guys, typically it's going to go up a little bit because of how defensive have to adjust and so on and so on. But that's a lot. And the Phillies have looked at, like, you know, what what is this? How can we do this? Can he pitch from the stretch? Is there something else? But they've never really identified it, and it's it's a problem that has helped him. I mean, excuse me, has hurt him yeah. forever. And, and I do feel like you don't want to beat up on Aaron Nola too much. No, 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 because, no, no. No, because yeah. as you said, when he's good, he's great. And I think we touched on this last week. People forget how great he was in the game he pitched in the um, – Wild card round against the Cardinals in Game 2, and that Game 3 went over the Braves in the playoffs, and he had similar starts like that throughout the regular season. It's just that what we saw Thursday was so familiar to everyone who has followed this team over time that all these concerns bubble up to the surface. Yeah, and then there was the, the World Series. You know? That, uh, yeah. But he was he was gassed. He just, he just was. Yeah. So... How much of this falls on the manager? And I'll put it to you this way. Again, we're I know we're hyper-looking at one game, and it's the yeah. first game of the year. That's okay. But that's basically what we got right now. Exactly. That's our sample size. Yeah. Uh, to me, you got a 5-0 lead on, on uh, what's his name, on, on DeGrom. Yeah. Okay? I would have had the bullpen up and ready, thinking no, he had, Nola really hadn't done well in this spring. He's thinking that he's going to go five, six innings. is probably ambitious. They didn't have anybody up for a long time. They kind of rushed Soto in there. He can't find a plate. He's getting <laughs> waxed. That was not a good debut for him. But, I, again, I'm not going to say that Rob Thompson was inept, but I would have hoped that he would have had something, somebody up a lot. You got 14 men in the bullpen, for God's sakes. Well, it's well, I- Loosen up a couple guys. It's ironic, isn't it, Glenn, that we're talking about Rob Thompson not going to get his starter <laughs> soon enough. Uh, when in Game 6 time. of the World Series, he probably got Zach Wheeler too quickly. Yeah. Uh, At least I thought he did. Yeah. Um, I, I probably wasn't on his mind, but that is there is irony there. Yeah, and but I think you make a good point in there is something to be said for a manager knowing his pitcher and knowing the history of that pitcher. And if you start to see Aaron Nola start to give up hit after hit, 
thinking that he's going to pitch his way through it might not be the smartest way to approach it. Yep. So Nola is different from Zach Wheeler, different from Ranger Suarez when he's healthy, different from everybody else, and you've got to know that and adjust accordingly. And it's early in the season. It's the first game of the season. Right. Guys aren't stretched out. I, I don't know what Nola's longest appearance was in the spring, mm-hmm. but I bet you it wasn't five innings. You know, Gabe Kapler got a lot of criticism oh, a few years ago. Oh, God, please. For yes, the 61 pitches, yeah, Nola. Yeah. yeah, but he was cruising. He was. He was. He was cruising. Maybe Gabe knew a little something. Gabe knew nothing. <laughs> Gabe was a blithering idiot. Come on now. Uh, 215-592-9494. Let's sneak John and Manny in here. Hey, John, what's on your mind? Hey, guys. Do you ever think, like, remember after the Phillies won the World Series, Cole Hamels was MVP? Yeah. Next year his arm was run out. I'm kind of worried about that with um, uh, with uh, Nola and Wheeler. They, they haven't really been in the playoffs that deep that far. It's not illegitimate. He pitched. I had how many innings he pitched last year up here somewhere. Who, Nola? Yeah, 230. 205, 205 during the regular season, and then an additional. 231 total. There you go. Okay? Yeah. 231 total and was not good in his last three starts. You have a short postseason. Uh, is it taking its toll? Are we headed for the Cole Hamels 2009 season? I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's certainly possible that. That length of that season and the amount of work he had last season will take its toll. The thing with Hamels, John, was that, and I think Cole would tell you this and was saying this uh, in the aftermath of 2009, Cole kind of hit the banquet circuit a little bit uh, and was celebrating the Phillies having won a World Series and him having been the MVP. And I think in retrospect, he looked back and said, you know what, I should have prepared a little bit more. I should have, you know, gone about things a little bit differently than I did in that offseason, and it, it led to the worst season of his career. No, thanks. Mm-hmm. Don't need that dessert. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, one more thing here. So, on the outfield, you know, it's only one game. I'm not, like, panicking, but why is J.K. playing the outfield? He's like a guy off the uh, waiver wire. Don't they have anyone else they could have put out there? I mean... No, he can field, and they need guys who can field. Yeah. I don't... I don't okay. uh, we'll see how he does. Yeah, he's not a guy who's got a distinguished career over in the American League, and I don't know... If he's a long-term solution to anything, they got some injuries. They got him in there. No, they, I, I'm they just traded for this guy from Oakland who can play defense and can't hit at all. At 164, this yeah. Pache. So he once upon a time, big-time prospect, top 50 prospect in baseball. Is he like are there the Mickey Moniak coming back? Kind of, yeah. Um, Feels yeah. like it. He, he's look. They took a flyer on him, and he's apparently a terrific defensive center fielder, which you need because you have a traffic cone in left field in Kyle Schwarber and a pretty much a traffic cone in right field in Nick Castellanos. I got Marshy. Yeah, Marshy's good. I like Marshy. Marshy, tr- big triple. He did. Start the season. All right, a um, couple things I want to talk about. Um, I have watched a good amount of baseball in the last two days, and Mike, I'm loving it. <laughs> to quote Kramer, yeah. I'm loving it. <laughs> Uh, the games the games are quicker. Yes. Uh, four games yesterday averaged two minutes and 37, two hours and 37 minutes. I'll take it. Mets-Marlins, two hours and nine minutes. Average length over the first two days of baseball down 30 minutes. The best part, by, by the way, being there was an inning where uh, T-Mac and uh, Ben Davis had the commissioner in their mm-hmm. booth. And it lasted like four minutes. Well, that's great. Because <laughs> who wants right, to listen to Rob Manfred? All right, Commissioner Manfred, get lost. Yeah. Okay, uh, it means a lot of things, and I want your, your take on that first, but one of the things I think it means, you being the parent of fairly young children, you can take them to a 7 o'clock Phillies game. That's game. If that game wraps up at 9.20, you can have them home, you know, before midnight, 
Glenn, this factored into my thinking Thursday. The game starts first pitches at 4 o'clock. At 6.30, I have to take my older son to his practice that mm-hmm. night. So I went into that thinking, I'm going to be able to, there's a good chance I'm going to be able to watch this entire game and not miss anything. And now, it turned out that wasn't the case because there were a lot of hits and a lot of runs. But even in an 11-7 game, it was moving like this. Yeah, it came in under three hours, I think. Yeah, uh-huh. and, and that's wonderful. Look, part of the reason I don't like college football as much as the NFL is that when you sit down and watch a college football game, man, you are in there for three and a half to four hours. It's like playing a round of golf. It is. That was baseball every night. Yeah, without the action of college football, exactly. by the way. College football, it's 46 to 41. Baseball, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think it's terrific, and I think it's going to lead generally to what we saw Thursday. And I don't mean 11-7 to 7 every game, but I do mean bloop doubles and line drives into the gap and ground balls because pitchers are going to work more quickly. They're going to be a little less precise. Hitters are not going to be stepping out of the box. They're going to just be trying to put the bat on the ball because it's, hey, I got I to gotta be in there and I got to be ready to hit. Yep. And that's all to the good. All it's, to the good. I think. Listen, I think it's great. I really do. I think a quicker game is is just a better experience yep. all around. A couple other numbers: stolen base. I don't have it for yesterday, but stolen base opening day last year five, <laughs> four caught stolen base uh, Thursday twenty one. Yeah, caught two. Well, the catchers weren't working very well, no. but twenty one stolen bases the most on opening day since nineteen oh seven. I was barely there. <laughs> Um, I was going to say, did you cover that game? I did not. Uh, I watched on t- I watched on the radio. Yeah, they didn't even have a radio back then. I didn't. I watched on whatever. Uh, saw those moving pictures. Yeah. Uh. Um, listen, I love that and think it's great. And by the way, we'll win me dinner from Jody Mac. Which well, that's we'll, the important. Thing. We bet uh, will stolen bases be up ten percent or more this year? I say, yeah, of course they of will. Of course they are, and they are. And the stolen base is good. It's fun, Glenn. Not to sound like somebody of a way earlier generation. But growing up watching the Phillies, one of the teams that would drive me crazy when the Phillies would play them would be the St. Louis Cardinals. And the reason the Cardinals drove me crazy was because it was tension from the moment that team started batting. It was Vince Coleman. It was Willie McGee. It was Ozzie Smith. It was Tommy Herr. It was Guy chopping the ball. All these little guys with like limbs, the width of Slim Jim. Yes, but they would chop the ball off that turf at Bush Stadium, and they'd get on first, and then they would steal bases. Yeah, and then Jack Clark would come up and clear the bases. Yeah, no, that. But there was tension and action. Yeah, there was tension and action, and that's what baseball's been missing. It's fun, and it's listen. Baseball is great when it's a variety of things. When you have power and mm-hmm. you have speed and you have defense and so on and all that we had in the last few years was home runs and strikeouts and walks and home runs and strikeouts and walks and and you know what else the the pitch clock is going to lead to it's going to lead i think to pitchers having to become even more deceptive than they already are changing speeds mm. slower curveballs more changeups because you're not going to have the time in between pitches to just hump up and throw a hundred yeah. every single time. Yeah, and the guys who take the most time between pitchers are those relievers who come in the seventh and eighth exactly. and throw 18 pitches at 102 miles an hour but need 45 seconds to recover between each of them. Yes, this is going to be good. And I think that I saw a little bit too early to say the effects of no shift. Not everybody, as you say, trying to jack the ball out of the home run. Strikeouts are down. I can't quantify that yet, but I think that's true. To quote our colleague at WIP and yours at the Inquirer, Marcus Hayes, I, I'm 
stealing exactly what he wrote the other day because I thought it was spot on. Prediction. The pitch clock and the death of the shift will save baseball. The game now moves briskly. Contact is rewarded. Base running matters. This is how the game is meant to be played. Not a parade of homers, walks, fourth outfield outs, and strikeouts. And Marcus is right, and it's mm-hmm. it, and I, I'm just curious how people feel. I know we got a really short sample size, and mostly everybody's going to remember Nola getting waxed there. But I'm curious how you feel so far. Yeah. One other thing I want to work. Yeah, go ahead. No, I'm with you. Okay. One amen, th- amen, brother, amen. One other thing I want to get in. The umpires are just off. <laughs> it's this is this is I I've tried over. 29 and a half years of doing this show to not be the guy who said, oh, the umpire, yeah. the referee stole it mm-hmm. from us. Although the call on Bradbury is still <laughs> bugs me. It's, I'll be honest. but <laughs> The referee but, didn't steal it from us and, um, except for that time that yeah, he stole it from us. I know. I try not to do it any more than I have to. But And, and this isn't the case of the Phillies getting robbed, but the, the strike zone is so fluid yes. and so – you know, varies from player to player, and uh, I think that one of the things that Manfred said they're going to look at is automated strike zones, and baby, I am all there. I'm there, too, I think, uh, for the strike zone, for the strike zone. If you can pull it off, if you can have whatever infrared laser technology Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. That is necessary to to do it. Go ahead and do it. Uh, Because it is something that frustrates people who love the sport. It frustrates the players that ball strike calls are inconsistent. Uh, that the zone, I hear this from from family members who love the sport uh, all the time, they don't call balls and strikes the way the rule book says you're supposed to call balls and strikes. They're, it's in the rule book. Okay, uh, well then. And guess what? They're traveling in basketball too. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but at least now. You've been talking to my grandfather? Who are you talking to? <laughs> uh, I'll, 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 that's, I'll, real, that's real old guy stuff. It is real old guy stuff, and I will I will not reveal who which family members I'm speaking of here. <laughs> okay. um, but. If you can program it so that the strike zone is uniform for every player, go for it. Yep. Do it. Yep. Referees are just a bigger, bigger problem in sports. Uh, it, it... Now, now, this can go too far. I think football, for instance, is hampered by technology and replay and the, the, the need to try to get the call exactly right all the time. We saw that in the Super Bowl, Glenn. Um, so we can go too far. Mm-hmm. If, if we're going to limit the automation to the strike zone, I'm cool with that. 
Okay. Well, we can tell you, we'll debate that more um, down the road. Okay. Coming up, um, Sixers. We'll talk about them some. They appear to be locked into uh, the third spot. What does that mean? Uh, we're going to talk later today with Tim Bontemps, who covers uh, the NBA for ESPN. We're going to talk Jeff McClain, the Inquirer's uh, outstanding Eagles beat writer, did a fascinating, revealing podcast with Lane Johnson about Lane's uh, struggles with mental health. Um, and, and you know what? We're going to talk some about owners today, including in the next segment. Uh, you wrote a very interesting column about Philly's ownership. We're going to talk about changes that the Flyers and Comcast Spectacles making at the top. And let's save a couple moments to just shred Josh Harris. Sure. For being just the biggest jackass <laughs> owner that we have had since Norman Brayman. Wow. That's, yeah. a, that's a bold statement. I think it's, you, you find one worse, and I'll explain why that is. But we certainly want to take your calls. 215-592-9494. Saturday morning on 94WIP with Mike Sealski. I'm Glenn Macknow. With Mike Sealski, I'm Glenn Macknow. Saturday morning, 94WIP. Robert in Germantown, what's on your mind today? Well, you two convinced me. I am a repentant uh, person. I've come around to your point of view on the on the clock, reluctantly so. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You were the you were the traditionalist, the purist, right? I, I, I had the old time purist. You know, afternoon baseball, enjoyed the long games. Yeah. Ro- Robert, come to the dark side. Robert, come to the dark what? side. There there is actually light over here. Yeah. No. Thanks, guys, for enlightening me. Your show, as always, is provocative and entertaining. Thank you. Uh, I was looking at the NHL draft just to slide over to my favorite sport, hockey. Being a Canadian, that's our curling and hockey. What can I tell you? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Glenn and I are actually going to have a robust curling debate during the 11 o'clock hour. I I have done curling. Have you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. But, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the NHL draft, which I know exactly one player, but I am told there's about four or five really good players worth getting. Yes, and that's the problem because we're at drafting at the presently like number seven or so, and uh, you know I don't know if with the, the the ball and our chances and all that nonsense, but you know I I, I kind of wish we had tanked the season. Uh, so Mike Zielski issue, boy, Robert, Mike, he put the ball on the tee for you right there. He did. There. He did. You know, yeah. Robert, the irony is all the Flyers needed to do was be really bad, and and they couldn't do it. <laughs> they couldn't do it. They weren't quite bad enough. I know they had a chance to lose to Montreal at home the other day. I couldn't. So okay, but here, so while I while I share the desire to see them lose, that you do. I mean, what what do you want the coach to do? Nothing, absolutely nothing. It's not about the coach. It's not about even the players. It's about how you're approaching the entire rebuild that you have to do. I mean, Mm -hmm. you could make an argument. Thanks, Robert. You could really make an argument that if the Flyers were serious about rebuilding. They wouldn't have hired John Tortorella in the first place because he's too good a coach. That you hire John Tortorella and you're going to overachieve, which is not what you want to have happen. Okay. I mean, I, I want them to lose, but I, I well, we, we've been through this debate yeah. so many times with we the have. Sixers. And I just think it's immoral I know. to I know. do that. And, and, I, and I would think that way if the entire incentive structure of rebuilding a team wasn't set up to encourage this kind of thing. Yeah, I hear you. All right, Anthony in Atlantic City. He's got thought on the strike zone. What's up, Ant? Hey. How's hey. it going, guys? Good. Hi, Anthony. Um, I just wanted to talk. You were talking about, you know, the technology and I'm possibly agreeing with the strike zone, you know, needing that. And uh, I just want to say one thing about that. The only reason we're saying that is because we got spoiled. What I mean by that is they put that box up on TV. 
Before mm. that, none of us knew if that was a strike. Even if we were at the game, sitting in a thousand dollar seat, I couldn't tell if it was a ball or a strike. So I'm just saying, if you're going to go digital, like you guys are saying, why not go all out? You know, put sensors in the gloves, the ball, the bases. This way, someone steps on the base, the sensor catches the glove. You know which one's which and who won. There's there's nothing to it. The ump's are just there standing there. I mean, I'm, put them on know, the foul I gotta, line. I got to tell so you, you know, if there's I, a foul ball. I, I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know how you feel, Mike. Anthony, I, you got my vote. Let, let me offer uh, an outside-the-box thought. One of the things that used to make baseball entertaining was one of the reasons baseball was entertaining was managers getting thrown out of games for arguing balls and strikes and calls. You, you can do away with that. You, you know, you don't want Earl Weaver. You don't like yeah, Earl, Earl Weaver, Weaver kicking dirt. Yeah. <laughs> Larry Bowen losing his the mind. Base. Yeah. Man. Nah. Okay. Nah, I don't. I don't need that. Also, hey, I don't know. Last time you got, I talked to you guys this is a while ago. I'm not sure when, but I talked to you that I bought a, a Boom rookie card. So I hope he keeps going, man. That's well, what there I you need. Go. I did your up. your kids' college fund right there. <laughs> I, I would sell it now. Sell it now, sell Anthony. High. Yeah, sell high. All right. Um, I I would be fine with it. With the, the more technology they can bring into umpiring and refereeing, the better I am. And wow. I, and I'm and I understand what you're saying about the time gaps and so on. And yeah, that's a problem. But I don't need human error. Uh, I don't find gosh. human error charming. I see. I kind of do a little bit. And I think back to the, just as one example, the Super Bowl, where yeah, that was charming. Well, it wasn't charming because they went over Devonte Smith's. Catch, not catch, and Miles Sanders fumble, not fumble, to the point that it was like, oh, my gosh, will you just make a decision here, yeah, please? Yeah, uh, I, I hear you. Um, so. I do think they should be able to just call. I think that the the lead referee should be upstairs, mm-hmm. actually, making the call from upstairs. Because we see it better on TV oh, than absolutely. they see it. Absolutely. So there are times where, like, clearly this should be overturned. The guy upstairs is just like, overturned. Yeah. And we don't have to wait a minute and a half while they go under the, the hood. Yeah. All right, you had a piece this week. We're going to talk a lot about owners today. You had a piece on John Middleton kind of in praise of the perfect owner. Yeah, sort of, yes. I'm selling it. A little bit. I think the intriguing thing about John Middleton and the way he's approached his stewardship of the Phillies is that he's a fan. He grew up a Phillies fan. And in the heart of every sports fan is the thought and the feeling, boy, if I ran the team, I would do this, and I would do that, and I would sign this guy, and I would trade for that guy. And John Middleton gets to do that and has basically approached the job since he became the principal managing partner back in 2014, 2015. That way, he's a fan. He wants to spend, and he wants to win. The difference now, and this was kind of the point of the piece, is that in Dave Dombrowski, he actually has a proven executive who can channel all that money and all that enthusiasm and passion in the right way. Yep. And that's why you ought to feel optimistic about what the Phillies are doing and will continue to do in seasons to come. I love the job Dombrowski's doing, first of all. Yeah. right. And Dombrowski, he, like, he didn't come in to fool around. No, no, he came no, in no. to say, look, I've won where I've gone. This is how we do it, and this is how we're going to do it here. And uh, Middleton was not reluctant previously to open the checkbook, but, boy, he got him to open it up. Well, the thing with Middleton that's been interesting is he is much like Ed Snyder in that he invests total faith in whoever his general manager is. So when Matt Klintak says we've got to get analytical and we've got to turn this thing Got to change everybody's batting 
you know, yeah. everybody's swing. Middleton is all in on that, too. It just so happens now yeah. that he's got Dave Dombrowski, who, as you said, very nice guy, terrific to talk to. He's a killer when it comes to mm-hmm. building a baseball team. Yep, it's great. Uh, and the other thing that I think Middleton's really helped himself with, and you're talking about him being a fan, is he mingles with the fans. Yep. And that's something that's really, I think, goes in his favor. I remember when Jeff Lurie came, it's so funny. Jody McDonald and I are doing the show the day that Jeff Lurie was announced as the the uh, the, the new owner, and mm-hmm. he came on with us right after his news conference. Mm-hmm. There's a news conference comes on with us. And I swear, and if you ask Jody, you'd remember the same thing. Laurie says, I'm one of you. I'm, I love going to tailgates and the thing. I like mingling with the people and so on. And his first year or two, when Laurie owned the team, he would wander the tailgates and he would like pick up a football and throw it to people. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I mean, I'm one of you. And then he realized that people were like, Laurie, you suck. And they're like, oh, I'm not doing that anymore. And now right. he, he occasionally does it, but not a lot. He keeps his distance. Middleton... Last year, wading right into the seats, talking to people. Now, it was good times. The question is, when times are bad, is he going to do it? It's easy to do it when your team is on a roll. Like, Dad, we love you. Yeah. So but- what do you want from your owner? Should should the owner be out there in Section 106 chumming it up with the people, or should he be as the owner? I, I think I, I would tend more toward the Middleton model, only from the standpoint that you want an owner who understands and appreciates the market and the fan base. Some of the mistakes that the Phillies, we'll use them as an example, have made over the last few years is when they've forgotten that. I think the hiring of Gabe Kapler is a good example of that, where people here dissect a post-game press conference from the coach or the manager, unlike any other set of fans I've ever encountered. Oh, God, yes. So when Gabe Kapler says the things that he says in the way that he says them after the team loses, there's going to be backlash for that. And you as John Middleton, the the guy ultimately who's hiring that manager, has to understand that. And you can still hire Gabe Kapler, and you can adjust accordingly if you think it's a chance worth taking, if he's that good of a manager. But you have to understand that at least going in. So I don't necessarily need an owner to sit in the bleachers with the guys drinking beer but I do need him or her to understand the fan base and take that into consideration when they make decisions. And you think Middleton does? I think he does, yes. Okay. I mean, look, part of the reason that they went after Bryce Harper first and foremost was a fan poll. Oh, yes. I mean, they admitted that. and and Harper versus Machado. Todd Zalecki ran a poll on MLB.com, and it was overwhelmingly, we want Bryce Harper, not Manny Machado, and they went after Bryce Harper. All right, let's compare and contrast that with a complete jack wagon of an owner which is Josh Harris, who not only is the primary owner of the Sixers, but also owns a piece of the New Jersey Devils, and now appears to be the lead candidate to buy the Washington stinking, uh, com- what are they, the commanders, commanders. commies, the commodores, whatever yeah. that. The communists. Hell they yes. are, yes. Uh, he's got Magic Johnson in the group. He's got David Blitzer, who's the guy mm-hmm. involved with the 76ers and so on. So... I hate this, mm. and I do not think this should be tolerated. I don't think it should be allowed, first of all, mm-hmm. but I don't think it should be tolerated. How in the world does does the owner, or, or, I mean, doesn't the owner's loyalty matter? Doesn't the owner have to be true to his school, true to this city? How do you have, how can you be one of us if you own the Washington Commanders, which is, the, a, a, you know, a, a natural division rival of, 
the Eagles. But can you imagine if he tried to buy the Cowboys, which is one step from this? It is outrageous. You don't come here. Is he going to come here when the when Washington Commanders play here? Mm-hmm. I'm stumbling around because I'm so upset. I'm yeah. having a tough time finding my words. But, ladies I and apologize. gentlemen, there, are, there is steam coming I, out I, of I, Glenn I, Macnow's I, ears. No, I genuinely hate this. This is not an act. I, I Thank you. I genuinely hate this. So the Washington Commanders play here in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Is he going to sit in the visiting owner's box and then walk across the street to the Sixers game that night and sit with the people on the floor? If, if he comes to the game. Yeah, well, that's a good point. You know, I think— Who is this jackass? Well, that's the thing, Glenn, is when you ask me about the scale of what you want out of an owner, you want the owner to be invested in the franchise as more than just a financial investment. And that's the way Josh Harris looks at these things. Look, the reason that Sam Hinkie is was, I shouldn't say was fired. He wasn't fired. Technically, he resigned. But the reason he was no longer the general manager is not because Josh Harris was upset with what the Sixers were doing on the court. The other billionaires who own teams in the NBA didn't like what he was doing. Mm. And he felt pressure from them, and so he made a change. That's the extent of his caring about really caring about what happens with these franchises, whether you're talking about the Sixers, whether you're talking about the New Jersey Devils. That franchise got turned around in large part because Harris outsourced the the renovation of that team to people below him. He's like, go fix this, okay? Here, Can I give you a sliver of hope? Suppose Harris ends up buying the commanders mm-hmm. and is so over-leveraged that he has to sell the Sixers. Well, I, can only, I can only hope he's poor enough that he can't afford six billion dollars on top of everything else i i think i don't i, I don't know that to be the case i mean they got the, the, the the big either, plans but, to build the arena what are you talking about that's well, their golden calf down the road they're going to build the arena and destroy market street well what if they don't build the arena what if they can't build the arena are they just going to go to jersey or is he going to say the hell with it i don't know but here's what i think i think you don't own the washington football team or the New Jersey Devils. But the Washington bothers me the most because he's like the primary guy. This yes. is the thing. Yeah. And own the Sixers. Get out of town. Go <laughs> away. You are not one. I hate to say one of us because that that's 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 restrictive. And you don't really have to be one of us. But you have to care about us. You have to have a degree of loyalty to the fan base, a degree of investment in the fan base. And if you're buying the Washington Commanders, you have no faith, feeling, or affection toward Philadelphia fans, and get the hell out. Yeah. Go away. I I, I totally get where you're coming from. You look at other owners around professional sports, guys who have billions upon billions of dollars, a guy like Steve Ballmer who owns the Clippers, really wants the Clippers to be good and wants them to be a good organization. Mark Cuban can come off as a jack wagon. I'd love Mark Cuban if he was the owner of my team. But he cares about the Dallas Mavericks. Yeah. Um, You know, we're we're accustomed to – the John Middletons and the Ed Snyders, and what really Jeffrey Lurie is a great owner. I has, got no issues with Lurie as an owner over time. So yeah, I get it. I understand why you would look at Josh Harris and say, "I don't want any parts of this guy." I don't want any parts of this bozo. That's the only word I would change in what you said. Bozo. Yeah. Okay. I think bozo fits. Anyway, uh, Frank and Burlington, stick around. We'll get you coming up on the other side. We'll talk about another owner, another ownership group, or uh, what's happening with Spectacor and the Flyers, because there do seem to be some changes in that. We'll take your calls. I, I, And I know I just went off on a rant, and I appreciate that you agree with me. I'm curious, 
does this resonate with people or is it just like, eh, it's owner, we don't care? I don't know. I hate it. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think people are, some people are removed from the feeling that the team is really part of the community. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, Ed Snyder gave the Flyers that feeling. The Phillies still have it to a certain degree. I'm not sure how many fans feel it anymore around the country and even in Philadelphia. 215-592-9494. Mike Sealski, Glenn Mack now on 94 WIP. With Mike Sealski, I'm Glenn Mack. And I come out of the top of the hour. We're going to talk a little basketball and Sixers basketball with uh, Tim Bontemps of ESPN. Uh, but let's uh, let's get a couple calls in here. Frank in Burlington is with us. Hello, Frank. Hello, hello, guys. I love your show. Um, but I couldn't disagree with you more about the rule changes. I, I really think we're getting a bastardized version of the game. Um, it's like the shift. Oh, let's eliminate it because it's accommodating the bad hitters. You know, let's do a ghost runner. That's that's a great idea. They don't even uh, hold on, hold on. No, no, I don't. You don't like the ghost runner, do you? Not especially. No, we don't like the ghost runner. Don't throw that All in right. there. That's not. Okay, not. I won't. Well, how about this one? I'm watching the Mets two nights ago, and McNeil. He's in the box for a half a second too long. They call a strike. How is that good for the game? How is that even part of the game? He didn't swing. The ball wasn't over the place. And it was just like, oh, that's a strike. It, I mean, games will be won and lost because of those stupid Nah, rules. they won't. They'll, get, they'll figure oh, it out. Okay. See, so, here's the thing, Frank. I think the game that you've been watching for the last 10 years is the bastardized version of the game. I think the game that you love no longer exists. Well, I, and I, this I, is going to bring back the game that you love. But I think the the game you're talking about is because analytics created that, not, Correct. not the right. rules. So it's like, and I don't know if analytics is going any, away anytime too soon. Uh, and the other thing, why is everyone so happy? Oh, it's a shorter game. That makes it better for who? If I pay for a game, I like the drama of the game. I like the length. It's one thing I like about baseball. Hold on, hold on, Frank. Here's, you're not, the game that's three action, three hours, excuse me, is not giving you any more action than the game that's two hours and 20 minutes. It's giving you guys standing there scratching their groin. <laughs> it's that it. Funny. Well, I but mean, that's I, what it is, Mike. I, you know. No, I'm, I'm with you. Frank, I, I don't know if I've shared this anecdote on the show before, but <laughs> last year I was at my parents' house on a Saturday afternoon, and my dad had uh, a Fox game on TV. It was an American League game, Tigers, White Sox, something like that. So boring that I was scrolling through my Twitter feed and I came across a video from 1983 of an at-bat between Steve Carlton pitching for the Phillies and Keith Hernandez batting for the Mets, okay? And I watched that video and compared it to the game that was on TV. Carlton was literally, I'm not making this up and I'm using the word correctly, literally, throwing two pitches for every one pitch that was on the television screen in the game that was happening in real time. It was that stark. Mm -hmm. It was that different. And it was so much more enjoyable to watch Steve Carlton pitch to Keith Hernandez and strike him out, not just because they were two great players, but because it was moving at a pace that was enjoyable. Longer baseball isn't more baseball. Longer right. baseball is more standing around between baseball. Exactly. That's exactly right. And, mm -hmm. and not only that, you're standing around – the pitcher's finally ready to pitch. The hitter gets in there and swings from his heels and fouls it off. And then we go through all of it again for another 45 seconds. Now, the pitcher gets the ball back. He's ready to throw. And as we said earlier, I think that the fact that time has been cut down is going to lead to 
pitchers throwing different kinds of pitches, changing mm-hmm. speeds. It's going to lead to hitters shortening their swing because they're just not going to have the energy, quite frankly, to be able to swing from the heels every single time as they were for the last 10 years. Yeah, by the way, the shift is is the, the bastardization is the shift. The yeah, shift the absolutely. shift was the corruption of baseball. That's exactly right. Lou in South Jersey's with us. Lou, you don't like this either, huh? I do not. You know what it is? You guys are really smart and you're purists, but you're not like us fans that go to the games and want the experience. Now, I do me, go to What are you talking about? Give I go me a minute. I, give me a minute. Give me a minute. Okay, but I just minute. want to disagree. I do go to games and I do okay, go to games but you, but as a fan. Expert. I go to you're, games as a fan. Okay. Well, okay. This you're a professional. Let me let me give you my perspective. Okay. Okay. For me, and I'll go a dozen times a year. I was fortunate I went to all the playoffs and I went to the World Series. But typically I'll go a dozen times a year. I go with my kids. I go with my grandchildren. I remember going with my dad. All right, so the experience, who's going to want to say, boy, I, got out, I wish I got out of there an hour earlier that time I had with my dad or my son or my grandson? That's one point. Second, I saw that they said that you're now going to have to go faster to get the food to make sure you get back to the, your seat. Okay, also bad experience. Third, and this is really for the game, I just heard one of you guys say <clears throat> they won't be able to click their heels and, and have the, the power. So now they're not going to be at their peak. They're not going to do their best. You're going to get something less powerful. Who wants to go and see somebody who doesn't play it at their best? It's like if your surgeon is going to open you up, you want to have a clock on them? And I know that's an extreme example, but I just think, <laughs> I just think you guys don't, under, don't appreciate a guy like me okay. who I have, a, right. I have a life that's crazy, and I go to the game and I enjoy it. All right. He, let me give you, Lou, I, I think you make some valid points. Let me give you my perspective as the father of two boys, one of whom is 11, the other, whom, the other of whom is 8. One a big sports fan, one not such a big sports fan. We have taken our sons to Phillies games before the rules changes. They are bored by the bottom of the second inning. And the reason they're bored mm-hmm. is because there really isn't very much that's happening on the field. They're not seeing anything happen. There's no action. And the occasional home run kind of is the only breakup in that monotony. And to your point about players not giving their best, I'm not suggesting players aren't going to try their hardest or play their, play their hearts out. What I'm suggesting is that When you have 45 seconds in between pitches or you have a batter getting out of the box after every single pitch, part of the reason they do that is to regain themselves so that they can throw a pitch at 100 miles an hour or swing from their heels and try to hit the ball 400 feet. If you take that away, their approaches are going to change. It doesn't mean they're not trying as hard anymore. It just means that the hitter is more likely to just slap the ball with two strikes, or the pitcher is more likely to say, you know what, I'm, I'm feeling a little gassed. I'm going to try the 84-mile-an-hour changeup here and see what happens. And I think that's all good. I think more diversity in the style of play is what the sport has been lacking for years. Well, maybe I'm just too basic because I like the strikeouts. I like the home runs. I want that pitcher to be at his absolute best and the batter to be at his best. And maybe at the end of the day they're going to have to modify a little bit more. But I, life is so fast. 
and you just baseball is one of the few things and one of the most affordable sports still you can still bring the family without having to take a mortgage out right. and and but anyway i made my point yeah i love you guys you got a great show point taken. and uh, we'll call you in and i'll talk to you at the end of the season Look sounds great to it. luke thanks 215-592-9494 why don't you tell about the next guest so yeah tim bontemps who's been covering the nba for years first for the new york post then for espn has been around the Sixers quite a bit this season, uh, almost become kind of a de facto beat writer for them. Uh, he's going to join us at 11 o'clock, talk about the team's chances in the playoffs. Is this the real version of James Harden we're going to see in the postseason? Should Joel Embiid win the MVP? All of that kind of good stuff. And, of course, most importantly, can the Sixers actually beat the Celtics or the Bucks? Mm. Coming up next, right here on 94 W. All right, quick change of plans there. We lied going into the break. We're going to talk to uh, Mr. Bontemps. He is actually the NBA uh, and his players reached collective bargaining agreement last night, so he's doing a little quick reporting. We hope to get him at noon. Because he's a great guy and flexible, Jeff McLean of the Inquirer, who we're going to have at noon, uh, is joining us a little bit early. Jeff, we appreciate your uh, flexibility here. And, uh, yeah, that's otherwise known as not having a life, right? I, I can, I can just. Jump you on said it, way. Jeffrey, not us. <laughs> it's, a, it's a rainy Saturday. What else you got going on? Uh, anyway, I do want. I want to start this by saying Jeff is, in addition to being uh, the Inquirer's terrific uh, Eagles beat writer, uh, is the host of the podcast Uncovering the Birds, uh, which you can, uh, which is in partnership with uh, KYW Odyssey Us. Uh, and the Inquirer, a terrific must-listen, and the one you did that we're going to discuss later in this conversation with Lane Johnson is was outstanding. Um, but I don't want to start with that. I want to actually start with a story that I just saw this morning by Jeff McLean, uh, the headline of which, and I always am nervous about doing this because reporters don't write headlines. I've learned that over the years. Uh, was Carson Wentz could influence Howie Roseman and the Eagles contract negotiations with Jalen Hurts. They've been through this before. Um, let's talk about kind of where are they with Jalen Hurts and how does Carson Wentz's name get pulled into this thing again? Yeah, um, well, it's funny. I mean, how he kind of pu- pulled it in uh, at the owners' meetings, Howie Roseman, that is, when we spoke about um, – We asked, I asked, he asked him a question and uh, not really about the quarterback position. It was somewhat about the quarterback position, but it was about you know how to maintain this level of play uh, while also having to pay, you know, a quarterback a franchise deal, one that will limit what you can do with your salary cap, and also just these the number of you know over thirty guys that he was bringing back um, this off season, and versus what he had previously done, and how that kind of was, you know, he admitted, uh, you know, various moves that he made in that kind of in that um, vein were not really ultimately the right moves to make post two thousand and seventeen Super Bowl. And then he kind of brought in, you know, the, pointed out that Wentz did not play well in 2020. I think he was talking about, well, we went to the playoffs in 17, 18 and 19. You know, the reason why we didn't play well in 20 was the quarterback play and the offense. And, and I'm like, which was all very true. I mean, how we, it's fine for him to point that out. My, my issue with that was, was that, you know, was he realizing how, you know, whatever he had done to kind of contribute to that, to that regression. And did he also realize what, you know, how, the various moves that he made affected Carson specifically at the wide receiver position. I mean, Carson didn't have a lot of good wide receivers. He drafted Jalen Reagan. He gave Alshon Jeffrey the extension. He traded for Deshaun Jackson. And to me, that ties into how they're going to have to, you know, how they're going to ha- proceed here once they extend Jalen Hurts. And, and, you know, look, he's Hurts is going to get more than what Wentz did in terms of like how much the percentage of the salary cap. So, how he's going to have to be even more detailed and more uh, successful in his in his moves 
than previously, um, and especially in the draft. And you so you won't you can't afford to have first round misses like Andre Dillard and Jalen Rager, and those those two certainly contributed in, in large part to what happened. What we saw what happened in 2020. Now Howie's gift and what makes him one of the best GMs in the NFL is his ability to turn that around in only two years. I mean that was just remarkable what he did with almost hitting on almost every move um, post 2020. But anyway, that was more kind of what I was talking about. It's just like, you know, mm-hmm. the Carson deal and how he handled everything around it. And that's what's going to have to happen here with, with Jalen Hurts. I mean, he's going to have to start really hitting very close to, I mean, not 100%, but he's going to have to be very, very, um, you know, he's going to have to have a very high success rate in terms of what he does and his moves. So, Jeff, one of the risks that I think gets undersold in a way when it comes to signing a quarterback to a major long-term extension and the Wentz situation brought this up, was that to a certain degree, the team is kind of at the mercy of the quarterback, right? So the Eagles believed in Carson Wentz. They signed him to this deal. And then once he started not playing well, and once they drafted Jalen Hurts, he wanted out. He wanted to be traded. And it forced Howie Roseman and the Eagles to kind of go through all these machinations to get him out of town which they didn't want to do. They really kind of had to reverse the entire course of their plan because it had mm-hmm. been built around Carson entirely. Is there any indication that that experience is giving them any pause at all with Jalen, or is it because Jalen played so well this year and is regarded to be such a good guy and such a good leader that you say, okay, we'll take the plunge again and we'll have no hesitation about doing it? Um, no, I don't believe so. And I think it probably may be, again, I, I should mention this as well, it's probably informing their devotion more so to Jalen um, because of, of that experience. And they maybe they've realized from some of the mistakes, you know, some of the evaluation mistakes they made in terms of Carson, um, you know, you can kind of uh, weigh that against Jalen. And certainly I think number one of it, which is it's how he takes the hard coaching. And that ultimately I think was what was, Carson's undoing. I mean, the injuries factored into that as well. I mean, Jeffrey Lurie, we were asked about a similar type of question um, on when, on, excuse me, on Tuesday at the owners' meetings, and he mentioned, you know, well, Carson, he had a couple injuries after the contract, and I'm like, well, no, he had the knee and he had the back injury before the contract. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, play the 2020 hindsight game here because I think most people agreed at the time that the Carson contract made sense, um, but there were definitely signs that you know, looking back at it, that maybe, you know, the Carson we saw, you know, after that contract was not the Carson we saw in 2017, and maybe they shouldn't have given the extension. That being said, the extension did not kill them, and Carson wanting out ultimately in the end was a good thing for them. It really, I mean, yeah, they had that largest salary deadhead money hit in NFL history in 2020, but uh, 2021, but Howie still managed to work around it to with his his magical skills. Yeah. Um, and then with Hertz. Um, there, you know, you, again, they need insurances The pro, you know, what he, and Jalen has the leverage right now. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that he's a second round pick. He doesn't, the, the Eagles don't have that fifth round option that they can keep him beyond year four now. So, and, and coming off the season that he came off and coming off the performance that he came off in the Super Bowl, Jalen has the leverage. Now the issue is whether he's going to want like a three-year deal that's fully guaranteed. Um, that to me would probably, uh, mm. you know, a stoppage in, in negotiations. I don't see the Eagles wanting to give that. Um, they're going to want a little longer deal. They're going to want a little more more money to, uh, to spread out in the future years because that's right now that's where they are in terms of the salary cap. But I, you know, my 
I don't know for certain exactly what's going on, why it's, there's a holdup. Uh, you know, m- my guess is I don't think Jalen Hurst is going to want to play that game. I think Jalen is willing to take, you know, give a little to get a little. Um, because, again, the Eagles need – again, you need some insurances. If you're having any concerns about Jalen Hurts moving forward, my concerns would be, one, it's you know, with just one great year, um, and two would be uh, the injuries. Yeah. That will actually – the injuries probably be one. Yeah, the injuries would be yeah. – that, that would be the one. We're talking to Jeff McClain of the Inquirer. Follow him on Twitter at Jeff underscore McClain. So, Jeff, switching topics a little bit, in the last week or two, the Eagles have signed, whatever, five, six – uh, defensive players, um, and there seems to be something really in common here, very low guarantees, um, yeah. short-term things. Some of them former you know, mid-to-high draft picks who didn't quite make it in their first uh, stop. To explain, give, give me a, the kind of the logic behind, the theory behind all this and the hope how this is going to all work. Right. So, the, you know, if you look at the free agency, you step back now, we, we pretty much, they've done pretty much everything they, they could do or most of the things that they could do in free agency. They retained certain number of players, um, most of them like over 30, but guys that they know very well that are still playing at a high level, Lane jo- extended Lane Johnson, extended Darius Slay, uh, Slay, brought back Jason Kelsey, Brandon Graham, Fletcher Cox, um, and uh, James Bradbury. Um, great locker room guys, guys you don't have to worry about, guys who st- are still performing at a high level. Maybe not, you know, some of them maybe a little bit on the down, down, uh, you know, down slope of their career. And then they, with the remaining money that they had, they, they had to go out and get some, you know, bargain basement deals here and do that. How they were looking at guys, as you mentioned, kind of like former high, um, higher picks, guys who have the talent, but for whatever reason, maybe it be injury, maybe it be situation, maybe it be whatever. They just haven't been able to put it together in the NFL. Maybe a few of them have had pretty good years here and there. Morrow had, had is coming off a pretty good year, but he had the injury the year before, missed most of the season. So, like, you're going to have to do if you have only so much room and salary and with salary cap, you're going to have to make a number of these moves. Hope that you hit on one or two of them, um, and then you have the draft, and then you have there's still a trade market, and there's still other ways for Howie to kind of fill those holes. So that to me is the thinking behind what he did in free agency. The one component you left out there, Jeff, is players who are already on the roster who are young and presumably developing. So I'm going to give you three names, and you tell me which one is the most important and which one you think, based on what you've heard, based on what you've seen, will make the biggest strides from last season to this coming season. And those three names are Jordan Davis, Cam Jurgens, and N'Kobe Dean. Yeah, I mean that's those guys have to step up. I mean that's you know that's what you're saying here. Um, uh, you, I'm sorry, you said who will make the biggest? I thought you were yeah. going another direction. No. I thought you were asking which which guy left they make the biggest mistake about. But uh, no, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah, which which guy will will make the biggest jump? You uh, you think from last year? Uh, to year? Well, based on what I well, I, it's got to be Jordan Davis. I mean, he's your first round pick, and you moved up to get him. Um, and he's going to have to he's going to have to play on all three downs, or he's going to have to play a lot of, of the downs to kind of you start to kind of see some return on that. I mean, you, you get, maybe you give him a, a, a year to also develop again. This is a kid that's very raw, but just has unbelievable size and athleticism. And um, you know, he's going to be here for a while. Uh, I think Cam. I like what I saw out of Cam Jurgens. I mean, we didn't get a, a, a huge uh, sample of plays, and obviously that was at center, um, so it's going to be an adjustment for him to move to guard. Um, he doesn't, he's not the exact prototype size, but he's, I think he's only like an inch shorter than say Omalu, And he's he probably the same size weight wise, um, athletic kid. 
Um, I think I think Cam Jerkins is going to surprise some people at guard. Hmm. Like it. All right, Jeff McClain, we are now uh, geez, less than four weeks away from the NFL draft. The Eagles are sitting at number 10, the pick they got from New Orleans. Uh, if you were to uh, be a betting man, which, which direction do you think they would go? And as part of that, because there is endless talk about this on 94 WIP, do you see any possibility that they would take a, a run at Texas uh, running back B. John Robinson? Yeah, I mean, I guess going ahead right now, move back um, out of that 10 spot to accumulate more picks is probably what I would say. Um, and if they stay, defensive linemen. I mean, I don't, you know, look at the Eagles in their history, and when, especially particularly what Howie Roseman has done. There's not much of a secret of, of what he wants to do in the first round. I mean, if there's a guy that drops and you have a chance, because like, let's say four quarterbacks go in the first four or five picks, um, and you maybe can just stay at top at number ten and get a, a really quality guy there. Okay, I can see them staying there. Uh, if not, maybe they move out um, and again accumulate more picks. Um, in terms of the running back, I, I I don't think there's any chance in hell that they uh, draft one at number ten. <laughs> you know, so, but then you're looking at the whether they have the thirtieth pick. Yeah. Um, you know, that's kind of essentially most teams view that as a second round pick. But I could certainly see them doing that doing it there. Um, I know they haven't drafted a running back and they value. But if they, I mean, it obviously could depend upon the valuation of this kid. But just everything I hear, this this kid's a, a stud. Um, but I, I, I still don't. I, I don't think number one is going to be there at number thirty. And no. again, they, I they don't they don't want to give a running back five, you know, a first round contract. Well, that's either. what I was thinking about. You do yeah. have that extra year with with whoever yeah, it is, so and like, with a running back that is riskier. Yeah, so like I mean, you know, I know it's a fun conversation to have, but like I almost feel like it's not even one worth having, having because I just don't think it's. Well, you don't work at the radio station where we twenty (laughs) four hours a day discuss these things. (laughs) So, Jeff, uh, you've embarked on this new podcast called Uncovering the Birds, and you're two episodes into it, and it's been terrific so far. The first one, uh, for those who haven't listened to it yet, Jeff sat down with Evan Mathis, former Eagles offensive lineman, talked to him about his life away from football. Evan's been out of the sport for a while. But the second episode was even better because you did a deep dive with Lane Johnson. Uh, And the title of the episode, I think, kind of gets to the heart of what it's all about, which is bleep this game. Uh, And you and Lane spent a lot of time talking about his attitude toward the sport and the toll it takes on him mentally and physically. Uh, How did this all come about, that you were able to get this kind of access to Lane and that you were able to dive as deeply as you did into kind of the conflict that he feels about being such a great player in a sport that, quite frankly, seems to give him some stress and some, as I said, physical and mental health issues? Yeah, um, you know, just to be very clear uh, on this, too, like this is a conversation that we had uh, during, like, mid-season. Um, and so I'm sure his state of mind at that time is not exactly what it is now when he agreed to a contract restructure. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think Lane has been very open, not only about his mental health struggles, but also just about how he feels about football at times, you know, the love-hate relationship you ha- he has with it. Um, I don't, you know, I think when you hear the conversation, you realize uh, maybe this guy's um, to one extreme in that manner. But, you know, everyone has, I think, to some extent that, uh, relationship with their jobs, you know, a lot of people do, you know, and for him, it, 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 you know, it, it does contribute to, again, his, his anxiety and his depression at times. And, and I'm, I'm, those things are always there. They're always going to be a part of him. Um, but I think for Lane, it's just, you know, um, 
he's you know they put him on the island a lot that's a that's a very stressful position to have to play and um and I think Lane takes it all very much to heart um but then you know I spoke to him several times over the, uh, since that interview and um you know the reason why we had it then it didn't run now is because just the podcasting well the Super Bowl happened and also our podcast wasn't going to start till March and these are uh, produced episodes mm-hmm. these are the narrative series and um takes a little effort and time to put them together um and then since then, you know, like I talked to his mom for another story I did. We she's she's in there. She she brings a definite uh, different different angle of perspective to uh, Lane's struggle. So it was nice to hear her talk about that. Um, and uh, but ultimately, I mean, he I guess he, he does hate it, but he doesn't hate it that much. He just signed a thirty three point <laughs> five million dollar contract extension that keep him uh, here if he wants to to twenty twenty six. Now he talked about two years being all that there is, but his mom even on the podcast said that I could see him playing more than that, and I think. You know, when you get out there and um, and you're still the best at what you do, it's it's hard to walk away. Well, I think you undersell yourself. I I, I mean, it was it was outstanding, compelling to listen to. Uh, it's called Uncovering the Birds uh, with the Philadelphia Choir and KYW Odyssey. Um, and uh, the uh, the name of that particular episode was I hate this bleeping game. Uh, I think. Uh, was, uh, yeah, it was F this game. F basically. this game. There you go. Yeah, and yeah, and if I could tease next week's. We, it may delve in, it may eventually turn into a two-parter, but uh, we're doing Chip Kelly. Wow, uh, oh. your old pal. Uh, Wait, now he talks. Now he talks to you. Well, I, I spoke to him for this uh, story I did on Don DeSandro, the Eagles uh, head of security, and that's December. right. That's right. And yeah. like we do, at one point we kind of dovetailed into like another conversation, but just about our relationship. Uh, we didn't always get along. And oh, I remember. <laughs> I remember being at a news conference one afternoon, and you asked a very valid question, and he pretended you did not exist. Yeah. So like, but at the same time, you know. Well, anyway, it was we, it was very interesting to me, and then it kind of just made me re. It made me think that. You know, because um, it's the way he was so good to me during that conversation. I mean, he loves Dom. That's why he, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm under no illusions that he was doing the conversation for Dom, not for me. But it was just it's like, you know, like, and I've heard this so much from people who know Chip very well. We're very close to him. They're like, he's such a great guy. He's such a great guy. He just he only lets certain certain number of guys, people get in. And if you're on the in, you're on the end. If you're on the out, like I was, you're on the out. And the most media is typically on the out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, you know, and then I just thought more about his regime and I thought more about what he's contributed to the NFL, the innovations that he's brought in and stuff like that. I'm like, I want to relook at this, this tenure. And, and I don't think it's as much of a, uh, as a disaster as I think some people thought it was or think it is. So that's kind of like the genesis of why we, we did this episode, talked to various uh, players and coaches. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I think it, I think we got some really good stuff. Well, it sounds great. Again, the podcast is called Uncovering the Birds, uh, which you can find on your Odyssey uh, podcast with your Odyssey podcast. And, of course, you can read Jeff and the Inquire. Follow him on Twitter at, uh, I forget what is it, Jeff underscore Jeff McLean? Jeff underscore McLean. There yep. you go. All right. Hey, thanks a ton. Thanks, guys. Talk oh, to you soon. Thank you, pleasure. Jeff. Good stuff. Jeff is an old school journalist in the absolute best sense of the word. Oh, I love school. that. He doesn't Absolutely. takes no guff from anybody. No, and I'm always kind of chuckling to myself every time I see something on social media or maybe a website about how the Eagles don't like or respect Jeff McClain, which is so far from the truth. Uh, some of them may not like him, but everybody in that organization I was say, respects that's him. That's two different questions. Yep, yeah. darn right. No, he's he's a beat reporter in the best, uh, in absolutely the best way there is. 
215-592-9494 if you want to get in and discuss that coming up. Uh, you and I watched the same sports documentary this week about an icon of sports in the 70s, 80s, I guess, into the 90s. And we will and, and a local legend. Yeah, although he undersells that in there. Oh, he absolutely does. Yeah, which I want to get into. Like he, he does, It's about Reggie Jackson, and it's like, oh, you barely know he grew up here when That's you watch right. the thing. 215-592-9494. Mike Sealski, Glenn Mack now, 94 WIP. He created excitement on and off the field. Please welcome number 44, Mr. October, Reginald Martinez Jackson. Well, there you go. Uh, what we're watching is sponsored by Guided Door and Window. Receive 20% off all windows and doors with no money down up to three years to pay it off interest-free. Call Guided Door and Window today, one eight seven seven go guida or visit them at goguida.com. All right, Mike Sielski, as uh, that sound you just heard indicated, there is a 105-minute documentary about Reggie Jackson on Amazon Prime, The Life and Times, as told by Reggie Jackson. Um, much of it focuses, and I thought the part that was the most interesting is the part that focuses on being a black athlete, specifically a superstar in America from the 1960s, which is when Reggie Jackson broke into the minor leagues in segregated Alabama through the 1980s and maybe even a little bit today. Um, let me give you my, my thoughts sure. and then, and then I'd, I'd love to hear what you have mm-hmm. to say. Here's what I liked about it. I liked Reggie Jackson himself has conversations with iconic figures oh, like yeah. Hank Aaron and Dr. J and Derek Jeter. Uh, and their insight, I thought, was outstanding, um, particularly Aaron, of course, who talks about his quest for the um, baseball home run record and saying, like, I, I wasn't really thinking about Babe Ruth. I was just trying to be me right. uh, in something that was filmed shortly before his death. And mm-hmm. that was very interesting and very poignant. The footage is great from, you know, some early stuff early in his career. Came up with the Kansas City Athletics. Ace, yes. Who remembers them? Um, the famous all-star home run at Tiger Stadium. Uh, the three-home run World Series game, of course. The infamous dugout brawl with Billy Martin when uh, Martin's the Yankees manager. He pulls him in the middle of a game on national TV. Cliffs with Thurman months and all that stuff was great. Here's my negatives. Mm-hmm. It let... Reggie tell his story without ever casting any kind of critical eye or ever asking a tough question. He says early on in this thing, I am the truth. Yeah. Like if you can handle the truth, he's doing a Colonel Jessup up there. Yep. And nobody ever considers otherwise. The narrator suggests at one point that Billy Martin was a racist who didn't like him because Billy was a racist. And it never really seeks any kind of contrary opinion. I just thought that was very unfair it's too reverential, too one-sided. Um, I thought toward Reggie Jackson. I got other thoughts, but let me let me please pull you in. No, I think you absolutely nailed it. That was my issue with the documentary too. Reggie was the most controversial figure in baseball during his career, at the height of his career. And there have been other documentaries. There was one on ESPN. There was uh, not a documentary, but a feature film series the bronx is burning based yeah, on a book right. about the 77 yankees in the summer of 77 yeah, that was very cheesy but kind of fun kind of fun yeah. but even that 
presented Reggie in three dimensions better than this documentary (laughs) did. Yeah, it's true. You know, your point about him and Billy Martin was very true. Your point about the, the feedback that he would get and the criticism that he would get, was some of it racially based? It absolutely was. Was some of it because Reggie was Reggie and he brought it on himself? Yes, that that was there too. And you didn't get that full picture, I felt like, in this documentary. I'll give you one anecdote from my interaction, my limited interactions with Reggie Jackson, that I think speaks to this. You mentioned that quote about Reggie Jackson being the truth, Mm -hmm. okay? So two years ago was the 50th anniversary of the home run that you mentioned, the 1971 All-Star game. Reggie hits a ball that lands on the roof of Tiger Stadium. So I was doing a column about this, and I emailed Reggie Jackson, and lo and behold, he called me up because the thing that Reggie Jackson likes to talk about most is Reggie Jackson. So all he needed to hear was, this writer from Philadelphia wants to talk about the biggest home run of my life. At the end of our conversation, he said, and I quote, I love it and enjoy talking about it. Tell them I did it all for Broad Street, William Penn, Cheltenham, Elkins Park, and Wincote. Now, Reggie never brings up the fact that he grew up in Glenside and went to Cheltenham High School. Never, ever brings it up. But he knew that he was talking to a Philadelphia writer, and so he wanted to throw that in there at the end. It was kind of disingenuous. It was really like, I'm going to tell this guy what I think people in the Philadelphia area want to hear. Okay, to further your point, in the 105 minutes of this documentary, you barely know where he grew up. Exactly. It it hardly mentions it. There's there's some references to his parents split up when he was young and he grew up with his dad. Interesting thing I didn't know. So I think he's one of six kids. Mm-hmm. His parents split up. His mom took three and his dad took three. Yeah. That's an unusual circumstance, but you know, I'm not passing judgment. It's just, you know, unusual. Yeah, just odd. A little there odd. Was a, there was a very short reference that he was a multi-sport athlete in high school. I knew a guy, actually, who played football with him who said he was an amazing football player. He was a great mm-hmm. football player. But that's it. There's there's really, n- and, and it's not where the documentary has to focus, but if you're interested in watching it to see, oh, he's a local guy who grew up, you, you don't get any of that. Um but my bottom line on it is, is this. When way back a thousand years ago, when I was in journalism school, we were taught when you write a profile or in this part when you do a documentary, you cover the subject. And I remember Professor Cohane, <laughs> who was a big time sports editor in his previous life, mm-hmm. said, You cover the subject warts and all. Yeah. I still remember that. Yep. There are no warts on Reggie Jackson. Not in, in this, this documentary. Not a single one. No. No, there wasn't. And it's and it's disappointing as a result. I mean, I gave it what, two and a half stars out of four, if I were rating it, for that reason. And there's a lot of compelling stuff in it. You know, you mentioned the interactions he has with Hank Aaron and Derek Jeter. He does a sit-down early on with Dave Stewart and Vida Blue. Oh, yeah, tell the Stewart story, because that is, that's pretty good. So the Oakland A's, you know, kind of get lost in the history of baseball dynasties. They won three straight World Series, 72, 73, 74. And as it turns out, Dave Stewart, was a kid growing up in the Bay Area who would be one of, I don't know, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 people at these games. Nobody right. went to see the A's play. No, no. And Dave Stewart was one of these young kids who would go and cheer for Reggie Jackson and the A's, and it turned out he met Reggie and got Reggie's autograph. It was almost as if Dave Stewart were 
Ray didn't yes. and Reggie Jackson were Tommy, was Tommy McDonald. It was that story. I'm watching that story, and they've kept this relationship yep. over the years, and they became friends and so on, and I'm thinking, this is Tommy and me, except it's Reggie and me with Dave Stewart. This is Ray's story. Yeah, it was. that was great. That was great, yes. But, and Vita Blue was interesting as well. Definitely. Yes, but that was kind and of- Raleigh Fingers. That was kind of all you got through the hour and five minutes was, Reggie's awesome. Anybody yeah. who thinks Reggie isn't awesome- is wrong. Yeah. And that's not really how it went down with yeah. Reggie Jackson Reggie and his did baseball no wrong. career. Reggie did no wrong. Any, any of the controversies Reggie were, was in was never his fault. Th- they dive into, for instance, the famous quote from the 77 Yankee season, I'm the straw that stirs the drink. And Reggie gets away with, is allowed to get away with saying in this documentary that he's misquoted. Sorry, no, he was not misquoted. Mm -hmm. That's what he said. That's what he thought. They flash the magazine article that that quote appears in, and if you read it, it's all Reggie Jackson talking about how amazing Reggie Jackson is and how valuable he is to the Yankees and taking shots at his teammates. Anyway, I give it a little higher rating than you. I give it a three stars just because I wasn't bored. I found it interesting. Mm -hmm. I did find it disingenuous to use the word you just used, uh, but I'm glad I watched it. So I give it a I give it a three out of four. Yeah, you know uh, what you know what's interesting though, Glenn. Hmm. Um, Reggie grew up in Glenside in Cheltenham. There's a park in Glenside, Renninger Park. Jeff McLean actually, who lives in that area, grew up in that area, told me this story. There's a swimming pool in the far right field, beyond the baseball field at Renninger Park, and the legend is that Reggie, as an 11 or 12 year old, hit a home run into that swimming pool. That's great. Now. I don't know that that swimming pool was built at the time that Reggie was playing Little League <laughs> yeah, it there. Yeah, like 1958 or something like something that. Something like yeah. that. But the the old wives' tale is as an 11-year-old, Reggie Jackson hit a ball 300 feet into, uh, the, into the swimming pool in right field at Renninger great. Park in Glenside. All right, a couple other things uh, that I want to work into the segment. One, uh, I did not watch the women's Final Four yesterday. Apparently, it was an amazing game. The, the, the Dawn Staley lost. She did. To Caitlin Clark. Who scored, what, 40? Dropped 41 for the second straight game. Yeah. Yeah. I have a cousin Good named Cla- Caitlin Clark who is awesome and I love her. This Caitlin Clark is uh, <laughs> <laughs> is inc- pretty incredible. Um, so the men's NCAA, of course, kicks up. The Final Four kicks up. It's going to be Jim Nance's final time calling the Final Four. Uh, 63 years old. Um, he started calling him in 1986, was the Final Four studio host for five years before he replaced Brent Musburger in 1991 as a play-by-play announcer. Uh, this is going to be Monday night. The The final mm-hmm. will be his 354th NCAA tournament game. It's an amazing run, uh, especially for a guy now who, if you ask me, it's not CBS best basketball announcer. <laughs> Ian Eagle, who's taking over for him, uh-huh. is better, and it's not close. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, then that's good. Yeah. Uh, it's time. Uh, real quickly, I will give you my Jim Nance story, which I probably told on the air before. It involves a guy who's a friend of yours, who's a cousin of mine, Roger Rubin, the esteemed New York journalist, yep. sports writer. Um, years ago, we were at the Final Four in New Orleans. So how many years ago was that? Let me think about this. Oh, 15 years ago, maybe? Okay. Something around that. And Roger and his two brothers, my cousins, always would go to the NCAA Finals together um, the three brothers. It was like their annual thing, which mm-hmm. is great. I think they still do, by and large. Rogers at the time writing for the newspaper, and um, 
the night before that, we're having dinner at Commander's Palace in New Orleans, oh. which, right? It's oh, the greatest. My knees are buckling. Just it is. It's saying the name of the restaurant. It's so, so great. Anyway, um, we spot Jim Nance at a table, you know, across the way, and he's with his wife or his girlfriend or whoever he's with. And my cousin says, you know, he said something really nice about me during the broadcast yesterday. He, like, cited a story that I wrote, and he's mm-hmm. like, that Roger Rubin, terrific reporter, and, and, and complimented him. So Roger's brother says, well, you ought to send him a drink. Roger says, yeah, okay. He calls over the waiter. He says, hey, the guy over there sitting over there, could you send him a drink on me? Okay, so it turns out. So Jim Nance uh, says, uh, I'll have a bottle of wine. Yeah. And he doesn't get a drink. He doesn't get a cocktail. <laughs> he orders a bottle of wine. And guess what? It's Commander's Palace and it's Jim Nance. Yeah. And so at the end of so the So it meal, ain't going to be Asti Spamante. <laughs> it, it, is not, it is not Ripple. At the end of the meal, the check comes, right? And like, I will divide up the check. It's like, ooh, that, that got got pretty expensive, right? That escalated quickly. Yeah. Uh, and so we look at the check, and it's like, okay, well, this meal, whatever, it costs a lot. And it's like, wait, $200 for a bottle of wine. Oh, my god. Ooh, boy. So, <laughs> and, and, and Roger says, you've worked for newspapers. Yeah. Says, they're not going to cover this. No way. $200 bottle of wine? No chance. My editor's not going to allow this. <laughs> So his older brother, who is the head of surgery at a hospital in New England and therefore makes the money that a head of surgery will make, says, eh, we'll split it. Oh, jeez. So, so you end up paying for a bottle of wine uh, for Jim Nance. I'm 50 bucks into a bottle for Jim Nance. He never said anything nice about me. You know, but here's the thing, Glenn. That kind of speaks to Jim Nance, right? You get sent a complimentary drink and you order a $200 bottle of wine? Come on. We uh, had Jim Nance on the show a couple of years ago, and I recalled the story to him. And what did he say? He said, well, if I ever see you, I'll buy you a drink. Oh, well. <laughs> he's, not a bottle? He's, he's not going to get you the bottle? That's he's, true. Yeah. He didn't say a bottle. He's a saying quarter Francis of a bottle. He's saying Francis of Assisi then. Oh, yeah, my gosh. He's going to buy you a drink if he sees you. 215-592-9494. Mike Sealski, Glenn Mack now on 94 WIP. Hey, are you tired of dealing with those old, inefficient windows in your house? Maybe it's time to go Guida. How about those drafty, beat-up, that drafty, beat-up-looking entry door that you painted over more times than you can count? Well, go Guida. If you need added protection from the elements with a new storm door, go Guida. And how about that sliding patio door, that garage door? You've been meaning to replace it? Hey, go Guida. Whatever your home improvement needs are, I suggest you go Guida with the great people at Guida Door and Window. To help you get your project started, Guida is offering 20% off all windows and doors while allowing you to start your project with no money down and up to three full years to pay it off interest-free. That's right. Receive 20% instant savings with the luxury of paying off your project interest-free for up to 36 months. Restrictions apply. Offers for a limited time. So what are you waiting for? It is time you finally go Guida. Call today. Schedule a free in-home estimate at one eight seven seven go guida or visit them at goguida.com. That's go, G-U-I-D-A.com. Mike Sealsy, Glenn Mack, now Saturday, 94 WIP. want to thank uh, is Robert the Food Guy. Is that Robert the... in Germantown. Yeah, Robert the Food Guy. Sent over these biscuits. We don't. We can't figure out where they're from. I ate them like <laughs> there was going to be a trophy for eating biscuits at the end of the experience. Really? Man, they were good. Really good. Yeah, kind of like a southern home biscuit. Anyway, that's... Uh... Thank you, Robert. Yeah, thank you very much. Let us, this is when we uh, bring in our doctor for Cooper Boninger, and our pal, Dr. David Gelt, is with us today. Doc, how are you on this rainy Saturday? Okay, how you guys doing? 
We're doing great, Doctor. So there's one thing in particular that I really wanted to ask you about. There was news that came out this week that the NFL is pushing. It looks like it's it hasn't happened yet, but it looks like it's going to happen. That they're going to start flexing Sunday games during the regular season to Thursday nights. They want to try to build the audience for games on Amazon and make, you know, get better matchups for late in the season and things like that. And just kind of as a general matter, what is this going to do to the bodies of these NFL players who are going to have less rest, presumably, in between games because they're going to be playing now on Thursday on a couple weeks' notice as opposed to Sundays? How bad is this physically for the players? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be really tough. You know, obviously, they're already increasing the amount of games you're playing over the year, so they're going to have that uh, as a factor. And then everyone you ask as far as when you play a Thursday night game, every player hates it just because it takes you know a couple of days just to recover from the Sunday game, and then you have to go back and play again, and then you don't have as much much rest, and it's just going to be a toll on the body. So we're going to definitely see some uh, some injuries, especially soft tissue injuries that we may not see as much of just because – you just don't have time to recover. Longer season, more games, crunch them into four days off. They, they, you know how the league tells you they're concerned about the health of the players? Don't believe oh. them. Yeah. yeah. Skeptical. It's about the money. All right, Doc, second question. Changing the topic for a second. The Mets yeah. uh, plan to put Justin Verlander, I guess they did yesterday, on the uh, IL with a mm-hmm. low-grade Terrace Major strain. And when I mentioned Terrace Major to Mike Sielski, you said? Sounds like a constellation. Yeah, <laughs> I, in all of the years I have followed sports, I, I don't know how unusual it is. I don't know what a terrorist major strain is. Yeah, uh, well, first off, for the Mets, it's, it's a shame every time they have a pitcher, they sometimes get someone gets hurt and they can't play. Yeah, yeah. it's a shame. Um, the Phillies fans are real broken yeah. up about it, Doc. <laughs> yeah, yes, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, so terrorist major, it's uh, it's actually in the back of like the shoulder blade muscles um, or the scapular muscles. Uh, and it helps with the shoulder as far as stability. Um, it's just below you know, where the rotator cuff is, just in the back of it, but it helps support the shoulder itself. And, again, when you're a pitcher, it's very important. The shoulder is, you know, is really a, uh, a amount of muscles that you really need to help throw and control and have velocity. And if you have soreness around that area, then you put more stress on other regions, and then you can have further injuries. So it's something that obviously has to take of concern and make sure that it settles down inflammation. The good thing is if it's just a strain, uh, it's a soft tissue issue and it can heal on its own. We don't necessarily ever really need to do surgical intervention on that type of muscle. So hopefully for his standpoint, he'll uh, recover quickly and get back to playing. Well, they've already lost Edwin Diaz for the season. They're closers. Yeah. Jose Quintana, yeah. they've lost. Uh, they're, yeah. And former Philly Sam Coonrod is out. Not that, that he deserves to be in that sentence, but. <laughs> uh, doctor, one real quick follow-up on the Verlander thing. Does the fact that yeah. he's, what is he, 40, 41, have mm-hmm. any factor at all? Does it make it harder for him to recover? You know, would a 21-year-old kid uh, deal with this sure. better? Sure. I mean, anytime you age, you don't recover as quickly as you used to. So and that can always be a factor, especially with the you know, soft tissue injuries. We, we talk about this with Harden and, you know, Embiid with these uh, calf and Achilles issues. It's just, you know, a, a nagging thing that, if you take one step forward, you take two steps back, and you just have to make sure you try to settle it down so you don't irritate it you know, when crunch time comes. Yeah. Doc, it is always a pleasure. Anything else on your mind today? Well, I, was, I was listening right before, and I, I know you talked about Jim Nance, um, about announcing it. I'm surprised you didn't mention uh, our own Tom McCarthy. 
coming up in the CBS. Uh, you know what? And he d- he he's man, actually he, doing a great job. He is doing a great job. He, he does the great. radio stuff. Yep. Uh, and he's done yeah. some TV. He did the first four. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Games in Dayton. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Absolutely. Now he's going to be mad at me. Thanks, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. I appreciate Thank you, it. Dr. Gelt. No, he does it. We had him as a guest last week, uh, I guess Sunday. Yep. Right? Yeah. Uh, and he, yeah, he's been doing the San Diego State games and all that stuff. So what's your level of interest in the tournament? Right not now? great. Not so, very high. How about that? So here's the thing, and I'm far from the first to say this. I've been hearing this narrative a lot, but I think I've fallen into it. I was really into watching those underdogs win, mm-hmm. right? Florida Atlantic. I used to live down there. Florida Atlantic was like a school you would walk by on a main drive. It like didn't even have a campus. Right. It was, it was like a community college. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Uh, and like San Diego State, they've never been in. Nobody from that conference has ever yep. been in, 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 right? And all this. And I'm thinking like, great, I'm rooting for them. I'm rooting for them. And now we got the Final Four and it's like, eh. There's certain factors, I think, Glenn, that go into making a Final Four compelling. And if you talk to TV people, they'll always say you want the upsets early on in the tournament, and then you want the Blue Bloods to end up in the Final Four at the end. You want the Duke, the Kentucky, the North Carolina, et cetera. I think you would want a Cinderella in the Final Four. Mm. You know, maybe Mm -hmm. a Florida Atlantic, if Princeton had managed to make it, something along those lines. What you don't want, and I think what we've got here is four schools where everybody's kind of like, eh. Yeah. You know, San Diego State is a nice story, but they don't play a particularly entertaining brand of basketball. No, so it's not no. like they're people are going to tune in to watch yeah. Loyola Marymount from 1990. I was going to say, there's no Paul Westhead in this story. Right. Yes, I was just going to say that. You know, yeah. and, and it's interesting, too, because I don't know how many of our listeners spent any time watching the women's Final Four last night. But the women's Final Four had star power with Dawn Staley, a high-profile coach, obviously very well-known around here, and a player in Caitlin Clark, who's just been incredible, dropped 41 last night in a Final Four game after dropping 41 in an Elite Eight game. And the women's game has players who are familiar to their fans. They've been around for two or three years. Men's college basketball doesn't have that. They just don't. And, And now you have a situation in this Final Four you don't really know the coaches, except maybe for Danny Hurley, and there's no high-profile player. You know what else it doesn't have? It doesn't have a bad guy. Yep. There's no villain. Yeah. Where's Shashevsky when I need him? <laughs> Where's John Calipari? Right. It's it's exactly right. You need the school to root against. Yes. I'm a, Connecticut, I'm going to root. I don't really care that much. Right. right? Like, uh, if Florida Atlantic wins, okay, cool. If they lose, huh, they had a good run. Same yeah. thing with San Diego State. Yeah. And even UConn, like, they're the best team left, I think. But, okay, like, UConn wins, okay. How many NBA players on these four teams? Great question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Right. So you don't have that star power like, oh, this is the best kid in college basketball. you got to watch these guys because they're going to – Magic Johnson versus Larry Bird, right? Okay, so that year was Indiana State, which nobody ever heard of. Michigan State, of course, was Mm -hmm. Michigan State. But Indiana State was – just kind of there because Larry Bird was there. Exactly. So if San Diego State was there because they had the next Larry Bird, yes, I will be excited about that. Look at the anniversary that today is. Today is April 1st, 1985, on April 1st. Yeah. Villanova beats Georgetown. Why is that compelling? Why do we remember that? It's not only because Georgetown was such a big favorite over Villanova. 
It's that Georgetown had Patrick Ewing, yeah, who was this god of college basketball, and they were the bad guy. Right, they were, and I, I don't mean that Ewing was a bad guy or that John Thompson was literally a bad guy, but it was. They were always so powerful you could root against them the way you yep. could root against Duke, the way you could root against North Carolina, the way you could root against Calipari, whatever. Right. I got nobody to root against. Yeah. I got nobody to root for, and I got nobody to root against. I got nothing. <laughs> and I got no bracket pool. That's been shot to hell since the first weekend. Yeah. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Thank you. I, I have to admit, Glenn, last night I tuned in uh, a little bit to the women's game uh, because I wanted to see the matchup. I wanted to see if... Dawn Staley in South Carolina, who were unbeaten, were going to be able to shut down this one great player. And it turned out the great player beat them, which yeah. is, that's a cool storyline, whether you're talking about men's sports, women's sports, any kind of sport. So is Dawn now free to take the temperature? I guess that's not happening. <laughs> Let it go, man. Yeah, Live in the now. I, I never even heard of the guy there. Not that I'm Mr. College Basketball, and I certainly wish him, what's his name? Uh, Adam. Well, there you go. He's okay. a Central Bucks guy, and I'm drawing you, a uh, you Central Bucks, it's you. That's your nape of the neck. That's where you live. You know these people. This is your sport, and you don't even know. Well, I'm not making Adam fun Fisher. of you. I'm Adam, Adam Fisher. Fisher. Yeah, I apologize. I should have. I should have known. Okay, I, and I don't, didn't mean to put you on a spot no, there, okay. but you know, it's I. It's like once upon a time, I know, but we're once upon a timing a lot with the Big Five these days. Now, good news for the for Villanova. Justin Moore is announced last yeah. night in a Friday news dump that he is coming back. He had a year of eligibility left. He, of course, missed most of the season yeah. with a, the torn Achilles. Yeah, He's smart. coming back, so smart. nobody happier this morning in the greater Philadelphia area than Kyle Neptune. There you go. That's true. 215-592-9494 with Mike Sealski. I'm Glenn Mack now on 94. Shot clock at five. And McDaniels playing a little volleyball. So is Tyrese Maxey. D'Anthony Melton, a slow Euro. That was, of course, Kate Scott calling last night's Sixers victory over the Raptors. Was it 117-110, I think? Uh, Another win for the Sixers, who are generally, you know, kind of getting their bearings back here, Glenn, playing well, heading down the stretch here. And we wanted to kick that around a little bit with a guy who, from a national perspective, really knows the team as well as just about anybody. Uh, he's, I've known him for a long time. He worked in New York. We were, uh, competitors slash friends when I was working up there. He was at the New York post. He's now at ESPN. His name is Tim Bontemps. I have to call him up here. Where's my mouse? Oh my goodness. I got it. There we go. I got it. Timothy, there you are. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well, CSK. I'm glad you can operate the machinery in there. This is this is <laughs> uh, yeah, this is why I didn't work in a factory or anything like that and just got into writing. Um, before we get to the Sixers, because we were going to have you on at 11 o'clock and and you were dealing with writing and reporting about this new collective bargaining agreement, um, we've gotten some of the broad strokes, you know, a a guy's going to have to play 65 games to be eligible for any kind of postseason award. They're going to have a a midseason tournament, which I think Glenn and I hate the idea of, um, what are your thoughts about the agreement and the changes and, and kind of what's ahead for the league? Well, I think we should talk about the tournament some, but let's talk about the overall agreement first. I think, from my standpoint, I think it's a really, really, really good deal for the league. Um, I think you guys obviously are in a town that cares an awful lot about baseball and football too, right? Mm -hmm. And you look at how the baseball and football uh, negotiations are um, at this point, right, and how acrimonious things are between the league and the union in those leagues. 
And I think when you look at where the NBA is at, this is a second straight labor deal that's been made with, I don't want to say no pain, um, because obviously these it's a negotiation. Both sides are giving up stuff in a deal like this. But this got done without any acrimony, well ahead of the deadline. And I think when you look at this thing overall, there are really, really good changes that I think are going to benefit everybody in the league. And, you know, from the beginning, there's been a lot of talk about these high-spending teams, right, the Warriors, the Clippers, the Nets. And, you know, there was initially some talk about, you know, a quote-unquote upper spending limit, otherwise known as a hard cap. And I, I think there's been some tools taken away from those teams. Can't use the tax MLE. Can't do some, you know, have to do dollar-for-dollar trades. But it's, there's, been, there's going to be some opening up, I think, across the board in terms of making moves. And I think in general – there's an emphasis on if you draft and develop a player, you have the ability to re-sign them. If you are the Sixers and you have Tobias Harris and James Harden and Joel Embiid and you draft and develop Tyrese Maxey, you could pay him and keep him, right? Mm-hmm. Same if you're the Cleveland Cavaliers and you have Evan Robley and Jared Allen and Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland. You're the Thunder and you have you know, three or four young players that you want to sign to huge contracts down the road. You're never going to have to choose which of those guys you want to keep because of some arbitrary spending cap. Nice. So I think all of that is really good. And I think it's going to be a beneficial thing to the league going forward. And as far as the midseason tournament, I think it's actually a pretty significant no lose situation for the league. The way this thing is set up, it's not adding games to the schedule. What two teams are going to play 83 games. Every other team is going to play 82 games. And those games are going to count towards your regular season record. So it's not like, there's some secondary tournament that you can sort of opt out of and get a break. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're, these games are all counted towards your record anyway. And we're talking about games in November and December when it's not like people are super jazzed about the NBA schedule in November, right? And if this is something that causes people to be 10% more interested in the league and brings in more money to the league for games that were already going to be played anyway – I don't really see how that's anything other than a positive. Okay. So I, I even think that is a good thing, the way they've structured it. Mm, I may disagree, but that's okay. We'll see how that plays out. So, Tim, uh, you were here I, uh, this week uh, as the Sixers played a couple games. You were here when they beat Dallas earlier in the week. You talked to James Harden about his Achilles. What did he tell you? I, I mean, you know, we'll see where this actually sits down the road. I mean, the fact that – you know, he said it's been bothering him for some months is obviously not uh, a thrilling thing to hear if you're a Sixers fan. But at the same time, he's played through it all year. He's been really, you know, based off what he said, he's been really good basically all year. He's played at an all-NBA level. Um, so, you know, look, it's the Sixers. It's an injury. It's obviously a cause for concern just based off of the Sixers' history. Um but I think if you look at where Philly's at overall, you know, James Harden and Joel Embiid have been the, a terrific um, pick-and-roll combo all year. It's arguably the best play in the league is James Harden, Joel Embiid pick-and-roll. And the Sixers are the deepest, most complete team they've had in Joel's time in Philly. And I think they've got a real shot. You know, they're going to almost certainly be on a collision course with Boston in the second round. Um, they've got a real shot to beat them in advance. And, you know, I mean, it wouldn't be Philly if there wasn't some sort of injury concern. But, 
I think, you know, I think in the aggregate, you know, I think what Doc Rivers said uh, yesterday, I'm, I'm losing track of my days at this point based off how things are going. I asked him yesterday if he has any concern about games going forward. And he said, look, I have concern because it's a tricky thing, but at the same time, we've managed it well all year and he, he's clean as far as the injury report goes, right? He wasn't listed on the injury report last night. Certainly looked good playing last night against Toronto. And I think you have to say that as of now, you have to assume he's going to go into the playoffs being in pretty good shape. We're talking with Tim Bontemps, who does a great job covering the NBA for ESPN. Tim, you hit on the thing that I think most Sixers fans are thinking about when they look ahead to the playoffs, which is, yes, this is the deepest, probably the best team that the Sixers have had during Joel Embiid's tenure as their centerpiece, as their superstar. And it might not matter because it sure looks like Boston and Milwaukee are better. And that second-round roadblock is still going to be there. You mentioned that they, you think they have a chance against the Celtics in the second round. What is it going to take for this Sixers team to beat that Celtics team? Well, I mean, look, I'm really curious, Mike, to see how this game goes Tuesday. You know, like the, the, the game in Philly a couple months ago, I don't remember exactly when it was. I think it was in January. It was earlier in the year. Um, but no, it was, it was right after the, it was right after the all-star break. It was last month. Mm-hmm. I, it's, it's been a long couple months. Um, they, uh, the Sixers control most of that game. Yeah. Right. Did, did a really good job on Jason Tatum. They had a bad seven or eight minutes in third quarter. Um, let things go the other way. But the, if you remember that game, Philly went on a huge run and came back in that game after being down 15 with, or 10 with seven, eight minutes to go. Right, it sort of felt like another game where the Sixers were going to get run out of the building in a moment like that, and instead it went the other way. And I think the thing that's different about this team to me compared to past years is they have they they have a real ability to dig themselves out of holes and, and come back. They come back a lot, and they've come back time and again throughout the season. And I think there's a resiliency that they didn't have before. Um, so I think that's going to help as far as how they're going to win. Those kind of series, I think probably the biggest question I have is, you know, they, I, I have wondered all season whether James Harden and Tyrese Maxey could play together down the stretch of huge playoff games against high-level elite competition because they don't know if they're going to be able to guard well enough, mm-hmm. right? And that, that, to me, is the biggest question they have to answer is what are their lineups at the end of these games going to look like? You saw yesterday in the Toronto game, uh, they put Jakob Pertl and P.J. Tucker late in the first half, stuck with that in the second half. It really screwed up a lot of what Philly was doing. You could argue the Sixers missed a lot of open shots. They did. But at the same time, as we get into the playoffs, teams are going to find ways to try to exploit the fact that P.J. has not been a very effective offensive player this year. And at the other end, if you have James and Tyrese Maxey out there, teams are going to be trying to attack that. So there are some specific things they have to look at. But in terms of how they're going to have a chance in those games, it's going to be because they are going to have, you know, Joel Embiid is the best player in a series with Boston and Philly. He's got to play like the best player. And let's see if James Harden can shake off what's been a career full of disappointing playoffs. And as the number two guy on the team, not having to be the go-to guy, can he play at the level he's played at all season? If those two things happen, Joel's the best player and Harden plays at the level he's played at this year, I think they're more than capable of beating Boston. I think they're more than capable of going toe-to-toe with Milwaukee. The unfortunate thing for Philly is 
you know, if they end up losing, say, in the second round, I think the three best teams in the NBA are the three best teams in the Eastern Conference. Yeah. And if they were in the West, I think they'd walk to the finals. Mm. Same as Milwaukee, same as Boston. Yeah. But ultimately, one of those teams is going to lose in the second round, and given two of them are probably going to play, it's probably going to be Philly and Boston. One of those teams is going home in the conference semifinals, and that's just – you know, the nature of how things are laid out this year. Tim Bontemps is our guest NBA writer for ESPN. Follow him on Twitter at Tim Bontemps, B-O-N-T-E-M-P-S. Last one for me, I noted the other day that ESPN did a straw poll on the uh, MVP, and um, Joel Embiid won. I mean, it was, uh, I think, about two points or something, really close over Jokic. Um, I guess I just want to ask you about that, and uh, th- there's there's a lot of talk in this town that he deserves the MVP but won't get it. This indicates that he actually uh, maybe will get it. Well, actually, I was the one who did the straw poll, and I've done it for years, so mm-hmm. uh, I'm probably the person to ask about it. But, uh, but yeah, look, I mean, this uh, the, the result of that poll, I actually laughed when I, I compiled the results and saw how close it was um, because it's just fitting given how uh, – contentious the race has gotten and how close it is um, and how those two guys have been going back and forth about it for the past three years. And look, like I've, like I've said repeatedly all season long, there's no bad argument against Jokic winning. There's no bad argument against Embiid winning. There's no bad argument against Giannis winning, right? All three of these guys are unbelievable players who had unbelievable seasons who are fully deserving of winning the award. And that's what's made it such a complicated thing because you can't really say this guy doesn't deserve to win, right? They all deserve to win pretty equally. And so you're trying to make decisions, like as a voter uh, in the actual MVP vote, I have to try to decide um, I have to try to try decide how to pick between them. It's going to be really hard. But, um, look, I think Joel certainly has the benefit of, you know, as you're looking at this, he hasn't won it. The other two guys have. I think that's going to work in his favor. The fact that he's finished second the past couple of years in a row, I think that's going to work in his favor. And look, at the end of the day, the Sixers have had the toughest schedule by far in the league since the All-Star break, and they've been way better than people expected they'd be against it, and that's because Joel has been absolutely dominant over that stretch. And if he ends up winning this award, which I think I would say he's got a, he's a slight favorite to win it at this point, I think it's going to be because he went out over the final six weeks of the season and he really earned it by playing his tail off and combined with Denver having a slump in the middle of March and Jokic coming back to the pack a little bit. So, you know, I know it's not going to be of, uh, I know it's not going to be acceptable to people in Philly if he ends up being a narrow second place finisher for this thing. But at the end of the day, I think he's had an incredible season. And I know from Joel's standpoint, the one thing he wants to do, I mean, he obviously really wants to win MVP as much as he's tried to tell me many times this year he doesn't want to win MVP. It's very silly. Um, but the thing he really wants to do is be healthy going into the playoffs and have a full playoff run healthy for the first time in his career. And I think he's in a position to do that. And if he does, I think he feels like he could take on anybody in the league and win. And I think if he does, Philly should feel like they've got a chance to, you know, do stuff they haven't done since the early 2000s with AI. Tim Bontemps, the next time you call in as a guest on our show, I will be technologically prepared for you, <laughs> I promise. And uh, and we'll do this again, my friend. Thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate you guys. Talk to you soon. Uh, thank you. Thanks, yeah. Tim. Yeah, busy day for him. He's in the middle of uh, the, the, the NBA and the players came to an agreement last night. 
think kind of surprised everybody how quickly they did it. Yeah. I think it happened at two in the morning or it something. It did, yeah. 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 Um, but Tim's really plugged in, and he's been around the Sixers a lot this season. Uh, and so to hear him say they have a legitimate shot against Boston in the second round, because as you said, Glenn, that's how it's shaping up, uh, that's encouraging. That should be encouraging to Sixers fans. Um, I'm not sure if I buy it because I think the team is still in a show-me sort of position. I think he's right. I think it would go a long way uh, to kind of building their own confidence back up against the Celtics if they were to beat them this Tuesday night. Uh, but, you know, that's that's what you got to do. You got you got to get through Boston. You How still. much uh, importance do you put on Tuesday night's game? A fair amount. I think the Sixers have to prove to themselves that they can beat the Celtics. I think, you know, Tim's point is well taken to a degree about that previous game where the Sixers controlled it for most of the game. They still lost. They still yeah, had that seven-minute stretch where yep. the Celtics blew them off the floor and the Sixers had to make that rally just to get back into it. Uh, they've got to win a game against the Celtics, I think, to, to have that knowledge and that self-confidence going into a series against them. Yeah. Hey, uh, one other thing I, I want to bring up, uh, just to change the subject for one moment, which is uh, Steve Coates, who just the legendary broadcaster for the Flyers. Oh, and The man. Everybody likes Steve Coates. He is one of the people that, like, nobody dislikes Steve Coates. He, he has announced his retirement from broadcasting after 43 years with the organization. Uh, they're going to honor him before the game against Buffalo today. Mm-hmm. Um, TV guy, radio, did radio for us when we had the yep. Flyers for like five, six years, whatever, uh, when he was there. Um, did the behind-the-glass stuff on TV for a while. I can remember, Glenn, when he started out as the pregame TV host. They put him behind a desk, and he was, yeah. hello, I'm Steve Coates, welcome yeah. to Flyers Hockey. Yeah, yeah. Um, funny guy. Oh, Nicest very. guy. Has the ability to drink a beer standing on his head. I have never seen him. Don't do know that. if he can still do that, but you know, <laughs> in his prime, the man could stand on his head and drink a beer. Don't know if you've ever tried it. Not easy to do. I think that's uh, gravity and all. That's Joe DeCamera's next uh, George <laughs> Plimpton-like challenge: is to drink a beer standing on his head with Steve Coates. Um, and I, here's my favorite Steve Coates story that he tells. Okay, so Steve was he was like a career minor league guy. Mm-hmm. 1977. He's 27 years old. He gets called up to the Red Wings. I'm, I imagine they must have had a bunch of injuries because mm-hmm. nobody's getting their call at 27 if they're a real prospect. So waiting for his chance, uh, and he, he got into five games, and I'm guessing this is the fifth game. Finally, um, he's playing fourth line, mm-hmm. playing eight to ten minutes a game, whatever, and the puck gets on his stick, and he has a breakaway. And there's nobody between Steve Coates and the goalie, and he's skating in, and all of a sudden he takes a couple of strides, and then he collapses. He pulls, I think tears, as he tells the story, his groin muscle. <laughs> oh, man. Falls to the ice in a heap, slides until he hits the boards. The puck, you know, slowly makes its way to the goalie, who just picks it up. And that was Steve Coates' big moment in the NHL. That kind of moment makes you think that there's a malevolent God up there just kind of, I'm not going to allow this man to have a moment of joy. Uh, And then just ruins it for poor Coatesy. Yeah, but congratulations to Steve. He did a great job. He will be be missed, uh, I'm sure, by the Flyers who will be missed by the audience who has enjoyed him so much over the years. Absolutely. Uh, An all-time great character in a sport that used to have a ton of them 
and doesn't have as many. Yeah, you you said that to me before the show, and and uh, what the hell, we go late. What what's what? What are your thoughts on that? Because that I, was I think, interesting to me. I think it's something that hockey is really missing. For that, for all the um, improvement in the sport and the skill and the athleticism of the athletes and the speed, one of the things that made it fun to watch hockey were the characters, were guys who were offbeat and different off the ice and kind of kooky on the ice. Some of it is a byproduct of the fact that the fighting really doesn't exist in the sport anymore, and so you're not going to have guys like that on your roster, but just, you know, the kind of funny knuckleheaded guys that you would encounter in the sport a lot years ago aren't around much anymore. Or even big personalities. Yeah. I mean, the guy was anything but a knucklehead, but I'm just thinking Chris Pronger was a compelling character. Mm Mm-hmm. Chris could talk, and Chris yeah. had things to say. Not always nice to the media, but that was okay. That was part of the game. Right. Um, and he was an interesting guy. You mentioned Bundy. Yeah, Chris Terrian. Interesting yeah. guy. Like, yep. And and that's gone. Like, it's one of the things that made the Flyers, to be quite honest, kind of a drag to watch this year. Is not just that they weren't particularly good. The, the guys in the locker room are trying hard. They're trying their best. They're good guys, by all accounts. They're just not particularly interesting. Other you than know? the coach. Coach yeah. is the only personality on the whole team. Yeah. Jake Voracek, interesting guy. Like, th- that was compelling about him. Um, you know, he got really interesting with me. It was yeah. so interesting <laughs> that it's still out. He found out you on, interesting. Yeah. It's still out there that's on still YouTube come, That still comes at you all the time it on does. social media, doesn't it? It does. I get a lot of... Um, uh, one, rat, one shining moment. Rat, rat gifs. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, we can talk about gifs, and we're going to get into uh, the NFL's ridiculous idea about Let's flexing Thursday night games. I hate this. I think, Glenn, you hate it too. Oh, yeah. Um, we'll get into that. We will, of course, take your calls at 215-592-9494. He is Glenn Macnow. I am Mike Sealski. This is WIP. Ninety four WIP. With Glenn Macnow, I am Mike Sealski. So, Glenn, I got angry the other day with news that at news that broke. Did you concerning the NFL? Ended up writing a column about it. It's on Inquire.com today. The NFL owners want to start flexing Sunday games to Thursday during the course of the regular season. And I understand. I I understand and know why they want to do this. They, uh, they looked at the ratings for Thursday night games last season, and ratings were down with the move to Amazon and the fact that the games themselves weren't very good. And they're looking around and they're saying, you know what? Americans love American football, but people in London and people in Mexico City and people elsewhere around the globe don't really seem to take to it very much. And we're running out of places where we can extract more revenue. So we're going to try to get better games on Thursday nights so more people will watch. And we're going to start flexing games. And I just hate this idea. I hate what it does to, first and foremost, the players and the toll it's going to take on their bodies because they're going to get less rest. And they've already added 17th game. But I also really hate what it does to fans. I don't know about you. I have a number of friends who are Eagles ticket holders, fans, travel to games on the road. And the idea that two weeks ahead of time, when you've planned for months to go to a game on a Sunday, maybe board a flight, maybe paid for a hotel room, and that game is then going to be moved to a Thursday, strikes me as 
so inconsiderate mm-hmm. that it's almost offensive. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong? No, you're ex- you're absolutely right. It's funny because I uh, I think I was coming in this morning, and I heard a read uh, for one of the companies I think works with WIP that books trips to Eagles games, and the schedule usually comes out I think toward the end of April. Mm-hmm. Right, it's coming yes. out soon, and so. You know, when the schedule comes out, there are always those people that say, like, okay, well, hey, we're going uh, to this, uh, this, they're going here in October, they're going here around Thanksgiving, what should be our trip this year? And and they absolutely plan a trip, and they plan it now for then, so you're absolutely right. Now, this is horrible. They they already flex games on Sunday, uh, which is, I mean, inconvenient to ticket-buying fans to learn, like, oh, we were going to go to the game at 1, now we're going to go to the game at 8.30. But at least it's but, the same 24-hour yeah. right, You can period. live with that. Right, you can <laughs> live with that. But to move it three days when there are people who travel or there are people who, you know, work or, or whatever, and they're doing it because they're giving into Amazon. Yeah. And why are they giving into Amazon, Amazon Prime, which carries the Thursday night games? Because Amazon paid the NFL $11 billion dollars for the rights to those games over the next 11 years. And so the league and its owners are motivated to ensure that they give Amazon attractive matchups. Yeah, it's horrible. Look, the coaches have to hate it, right? Because they don't have the time to prepare for the next opponent that they want. Never heard a coach say he likes Thursday night games. The players have to hate it for what you said. It tears up their bodies more. They don't get time to rest between games. And I heard the commissioner say, well, you know, they like the 10 days off between you ask a player if he wants to play Sunday, 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 or Sunday, Thursday, Sunday. I don't know any who are going to tell you it's Sunday, Thursday, Sunday. Um, the team doctors have to hate it because, yep. as uh, Dr. Gelt told us earlier, leads to more soft tissue injuries. And the fans have to hate it. So who likes it? Well, the owners like it. And Oh, by the way, you know who else hates it? CBS and Fox have to hate it Darn because right. it's stealing good matchups from them. Yep. Right, and they're not getting money back for that. Not that I'm worried about CBS and Fox, but still, you're watering down a Sunday schedule, which has already lost games exactly. to Sunday night, Monday night, Thursday night, and so on. The only people this benefits are Jeff Bezos, who owns <laughs> Amazon, yeah, and Roger Goodell and the owners. And you said this earlier. Um, not many owners have come out against it, and one who didn't come out against it is Jeff Lurie. And there's another reason the Eagles should be against it. Yeah, there's absolutely a reason that the Eagles, among a few other teams, should be against it, which is that if you're going to flex games, the whole point of it is to create intriguing, interesting matchups late in the season. So you want really good teams. So take the Eagles last season, who were expected to be a good team, maybe not expected to be as terrific as they turned out to be. If... They go through a season like that next year. Their games are going to be the ones that get flexed to Thursday nights. They're the ones who are going to be hampered or damaged by this. They're going to be 10-2, and and all of a sudden, they're going to have to make the sacrifice to play on a Thursday night as opposed to playing on a Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening. And I I was surprised that Lurie didn't take that into consideration. From what I understand, he's in favor of this, and... I just I I think it's a slap in the face to all the people that you said. John Mara, the the president of the Giants, was the one owner who spoke out against it, and he's kind of a voice crying in the wilderness. They're going to convene again in May, and they're probably going to pass it. But I at least give him credit for saying 
for do, for saying the right thing. So what did he say? What was his reasoning? His reasoning was, was exactly what we said, that we can't ask this of our fans. It's inconveniencing them. We can't ask this for the players. He was particularly upset because the league's threw this proposal out there and didn't run it through either the health and safety committee or the competition committee, which tells you that it's exact. It's all about money and yeah. nothing yeah, let's else. Push this sausage through. Exactly. And, and what's interesting to me, Glenn is, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, I think you remember that, that proposal that Albert Breer of sports illustrated a Monday morning quarterback kind of floated out there that it sounds like the league is moving toward neutral sites for its conference oh, championship God games. God almighty, please. Think about how much this league is sending the message that fans at games don't matter. Mm-hmm. If, you're go- if you're going to flex games to Thursday nights and you're going to push for neutral site conference championship games, what you're basically telling people is stay home. Don't bother going to the games unless you are so rich that you can afford to make any adjustment and make any set of plans and do whatever you need to do to get to uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta for the NFC Championship game between the 49ers and the Eagles. That would be the war. I mean, this is bad. That would be inconceivably bad. It would. Eagles make the NFC Championship game, whatever, once a decade, once every six years, whatever you make it, right? Yep. You're telling me... You play for the best record in the league and your hometown fans, and then you move the game. I hate that. I hate this, too. So I'll add one more chip to this pile. Okay. Uh, because Mike Florio, ProFootballTalk.com, uh, weighed in and said he thinks this Thursday night thing is another step along the way of the NFL saying, you know what? We're going to have a game every night of the week. Right? I mean, they do during they do them on Saturday when college football is done. They have done them on Friday around the holiday season. Mm-hmm. We have Monday. We have Thursday. The only games we don't have right now are Tuesday, Wednesday. It's not a big jump to say, you know what? We're going to have a game a day from September to January. Uh, I can't imagine. I mean, I, I, I would not want that. I, I just wouldn't. Part of the drama of the NFL, part of the reason that it has become the king of American not just sports culture, but culture, is that it's scarce. It's one game a week for your it's team. It's limited supply. It, it, it is. Mm-hmm. It's it's not baseball every night. It's not the NBA or the NHL with 82 games. It is your team wins or loses, and you got to sit there for six to ten days until your team plays again and right. either celebrate or stew about it. And you got to watch every game. Yeah. I mean, I, you know. Uh, nobody watches every – well, some people do, but how many people watch every Phillies game, every Sixers, every Flyers? Right. right. You watch every Eagles game. Yeah. I, I mean, if it's possible to have too much of a good thing, it seems to me the NFL is heading that way, but it also seems to me that they are – the owners are <clears throat> desperate to find other ways to make money, you know, when they're in the position of making billions upon billions of dollars already. By the way, our friend Dave uh, Didinger, son of Ray Didinger, yes. weighs in and says there is already scheduled a Black Friday game this year on Amazon. Wow. So there is a Friday game coming up this year. All right. One other thing I wanted to get to with you uh, mm-hmm. before we got out of here, because you're a guy who covers this kind of thing, and I am very interested in this stuff as well, is the Flyer Comcast Sportsnet. Uh, I'm sorry. Spectacor. Spectacor. Yeah. Let me keep going up the chain. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, a Comcast announced a chain this week. Dan Hilferty. Uh, Dave Scott is retiring. 
uh, which I don't think anybody is uh, feeling that bad about. Nope. Uh, retiring air quotes with that yes. one. Uh, and Dan Helferty moves in as the Comcast CEO this week. He's got a lot of things to deal with. One is the Flyers. Um, who is he and why should people care? So he's a Philly guy. Uh, he born and raised in Ocean City, New Jersey, St. Joe's alum. Big Flyers fan, knows the city, knows the community, uh, was the CEO of Blue, uh, Blue, Blue Cross, Cross. Uh, was the driving force behind the World Cup coming to Philadelphia in 2026. Big deal, big accomplishment. Big accomplishment, big deal for the city. Uh, and he's been brought in to replace Dave Scott, as you said, somebody who is familiar to the community, somebody who knows Philadelphia sports. And he's got two big missions here, I think. Number one, first and foremost, I think from what I understand and what I've heard, mostly he was brought in to kind of be Comcast's point person on the entire Sixers arena issue that it's been hard for Comcast to push back on the Sixers because the Flyers have been so bad. That hampers them in the public relations battle. It also has been hard for them to push back because the Flyers have never been connected to the city power structure. Yep. Okay? Ed Snyder was his own entity. Ed Snyder was an island, okay? Mm -hmm. I mean, Ed Snyder knew people, and he was a powerful man. But he, and certainly... After him, they, they're not real connected. They're outsiders. Yeah. You know, Dave Scott's not from here. Val Camillo is not from here. They're people from outside who come to Philadelphia. And as you know, as a lifelong person, if you weren't, you know, born and raised here, you're not necessarily part of the power oh, structure. I, Dan Hilferty is part of the power structure. I have a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, who I'm not going to name, but who busts my chops about the fact that, I call myself a Philadelphian when I wasn't born in the oh, city. Okay, well, yeah, I, th those people too. But Dan Hilferty knows the knows oh, the players. Oh, he absolutely does. He absolutely okay. does. Yeah. So, so that's part of it is that they want to be able to push back, confront the Sixers publicly on the whole arena question because obviously they they don't want the Sixers to leave the Wells Fargo Center. And Hilferty presents uh, a much better face, is much more plugged in. But the other thing he's got to do now is he's got to work at least a little bit on turning the Flyers around mm -hmm. because that franchise, as you and I have discussed, is in a bad way. And, you know, I had one source who's worked with Hilferty tell me uh, he's no BS and he's going to bring back a little bit of the Ed Snyder-ism to, to the Flyers. And I think that's good. I think you don't need to try to recapture the past fully, but you do need a little tiny bit of the Snyder feeling just so that people are reassured that, like, no, the product on the ice, the quality of the team is the first and foremost consideration because I think people came to doubt that in recent years. Gritty. Yeah. Um, do you think he's going to seek to be be the face of the franchise in any way? Because nobody – I mean, Dave Scott could walk down Broad Street and nobody would know who the hell he is. Nobody knows who these people are. Um, Danny Briere is the new GM, so you figure he's going to to some degree be the face. But do you think Hilferty is going to be a public presence as the guy running the Flyers? I, I think he'll be more of one than certainly Dave Scott was. And I think he'll be more of so one. Low, low bar. Low bar. But he'll be more of one than even Chuck Fletcher or Ron Hextall had been. Uh, right now, the face of the franchise is John Tortorella. Mm -hmm. And that's a risky proposition for any NHL team only because – NHL coaches tend not to last very long yeah. with any team. Now, Tortorella has gone against that tide in a couple of places, but he's the man right now. He's the reason to think that eventually they'll turn things around uh, because they don't have a really 
standout superstar kind of player. They've got to try to acquire one of those guys or hope that somebody they've already drafted becomes one of those guys. So I'm very excited about him coming in and taking over. I like that. As we've said earlier in the show, uh, we have no problems with Jeff Lurie uh, owning and running the Eagles. Not really don't like this Thursday night thing, but by and large, hey, you know, good franchise, well run. Yep. Uh, John Middleton, we're all good with that. Yeah, absolutely. And that jackass who owns the Sixers <laughs> couldn't sell that team fast enough to suit me as he tries to weasel his – not weasel. It's he's being very book. overt about yeah, it. Yeah, it's not a weasel. The weasel move is that he's doing it, but he is doing it very openly, seeking to buy the Washington Commanders – or Commodores? Commanders. 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 I still don't remember, but that's on me. Yeah. Uh, and I hate that and think that the city should rise up in opposition to this jerk face. That's my thoughts. Oh, Time's Glenn, yours. I, w- I would appreciate it if you didn't sugarcoat your comments. Like, please, tell us what you really think. Jack Wagon. <laughs> All right. Well, look, we're, uh, we're coming in for a landing here, as the great Mark Zumoff would say. Uh, we still got a little bit of time left to take your calls. Uh, Nick behind the glass is going to tell us what we missed. 215-592-9494. I'm Mike Sealski. This is Glenn Mack now. Hey, are you tired of dealing with those old inefficient windows in your house? Maybe it's time to go Guida. How about that drafty, beat-up-looking entry door that you've painted over more times than you can count? Well, go Guida. Maybe you need added protection from the elements with a new storm door? Go Guida. And what about that sliding patio door, the garage door that you've been meaning to replace? Go Guida. Whatever your home improvement needs are, I suggest you go Guida with the great people at Guida Door and Window. To help you get your project started, Guida is offering 20% off all windows and doors while allowing you to start your project with no money down and up to three full years to pay it off interest-free. That's right. Receive 20% instant savings with the luxury of paying off your project interest-free for up to 36 months. Restrictions apply. Offers for a limited time. So what are you waiting for? It is time you finally go Guida. Call today. Schedule a free in-home estimate at one eight seven seven go guida or visit them at goguida.com. That's go. G-U-I-D-A dot com. Nick, thank you. Anytime we can come out of the break with Beck, it's a good thing. That's a very good thing. I heard that, I heard that song in a soundtrack to a movie uh, recently. What the heck was it? That song makes me think of my freshman year of college. I remember when it came out and just hearing that lick yeah, on yeah, the radio yeah. over and over Shoot. again. I don't remember what it was. It is a great song. One of, the, really one of the all-time great first lyrics in the history of music. In a time of chimpanzees, I was a monkey. I love that. <laughs> By the way, speaking of movies, I'm going to see Air on Monday night. Ah. So, the uh, sneaker movie. Yeah. Um, I, You're I curious. you got to be curious Well, I'm a little. curious how you make a whole movie out of that, right? You turn Sonny Vaccaro into an underdog who's got to try to sign uh, Michael Jordan and convince Nike that Michael Jordan is going to be the greatest basketball player in the world and... You sprinkle some of that Ben Affleck directorial magic on it, and presto. I'll, I'll report back next Saturday on what we're watching. All right. So you, eager to see it. Yeah. So you're doing that Monday night. Yeah. What are you doing this afternoon? Oh, oh. This afternoon, my friend, I will be at the Keystone Homebrew Club. Oh. No, I'm sorry. Keystone Homebrew is the name of the business. Okay. In Montgomeryville. Ah. Uh, which is sponsoring the Club Barrel uh, Brewing Championships. So 10... Regional homebrew clubs are competing in a contest to see who can make the most, the best beer. Uh, they actually made the beer last July. They brewed it last July. It's been 
uh, aging since then in these uh, barrels that used to have uh, – what's the name of the uh, – Bur- Bourbon? Rye? No, it's actually rye. Okay. Yeah, uh, uh, Dad's Hat Rye. Oh. Right? So they've oh. been aging them, and today they open them up, and there is a contest, and I'm one of the judges. So I get to judge an amateur brewing contest today. So, so you're going to spend your afternoon. We're going to film a What's Brewing show out Okay. It, right? So we'll get a TV show out of it. Drinking homemade beer yeah. that has been aged in rye barrels. Correct. Since last July. There are worse ways to spend an oh, afternoon. Oh, it's great. It's great. Up in Montgomeryville. Ah, not far from me. Uh, come on by. I'm not sure if it, I guess it's an open event. People can come by and uh, enjoy. I'm saying that. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> Maybe I Glenn shouldn't say that. Glenn told us there would be beer. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so that's what I'm doing. Uh, I'm Beat he- that. Yeah, well, I'm heading out to Malvern with my wife and sons. We're visiting friends who we haven't seen in a while. And uh, it's going to be a relaxing afternoon. And then tomorrow, actually, uh, I'm going to be at the Jewish Community Center in Wynwood. I am emceeing the second annual uh, Maccabee Hall of Fame induction ceremony. That's uh, great. That's a mile from where I live. Yeah, it's going to be a cool afternoon. Uh, Michael Barkan is going to be one of the honorees, uh, as is Brian Schiff, who's uh, worked for NBC Sports Philadelphia for a long, long time. Has been a tremendous basketball coach in the area for a long, long time. So that should be a, should be a pretty cool event. Nice, so, uh, Nick. Yes. What did we miss? All right, so you guys missed a couple things, right? So. I don't know if you guys saw uh, on opening day. Opening day is usually a fun time. It didn't really end well in Oakland and uh, with the Oakland Oakland A's and the Angels. So there was a viral video after the game of Angels third baseman Anthony Rendon. Mm-hmm. He went viral for grabbing a fan and saying a few words to him. So I don't know what you guys make of oh, a player that. grabbing a fan. Yeah, that, we- it wasn't great. You, you can't do that. Now, I, I think, have you seen this thing yeah. yet? Okay. They should, they should sus- suspend him yeah. for half the season at yeah. least. Yeah. You, you, uh, wow, Even I was going to say a month, but okay. No, uh, you, you can't do that. Right. The fan, I'm sure, said something obnoxious. Mm-hmm. Fans should not do that. Fans should get ejected. But a player may never lay hands on a fan. He did it in a very threatening way. Definitely a, a long suspension. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not great out of Anthony Rendon. He's missed a lot of time over the past few seasons. Uh, he's going to miss well. more. Yeah, he, he might he as should. well. Um, so there was also, uh, you know, we talked a lot about Thursday night games, uh, the NFL. There was also a report towards front office sports. So they had a report from an anonymous NFL owner saying the NFL is considering expansion and adding more franchises outside the NFL in an international division. That could happen <laughs> In two, five, who knows how long years. I, I made a reference to this earlier, Glenn. The NFL owners want American football to be more popular around the world than it actually is, and they keep trying to wish it into existence, and I don't think it's going to happen. I don't either. I, I don't. It's not a – I guess you can import a game. I'm trying to think of sports that are popular here – I mean, to a degree, soccer, but kids have played soccer in this country forever, so really not. But football is not something that kids are playing on the streets of Munich or London or wherever, so it'll be a curiosity, but it's not going to ever be more than that. No, and it's expensive to play it, too. I mean, there are certain—hockey is an expensive sport, but if you're in Scandinavia, you're going to have all the padding and all the stuff as it is. American football— 
doesn't work that way. Yeah, so we'll see if that ever comes to fruition at some point. And then finally, the 2023 Basketball Hall of Fame class was announced, and it included Dirk Nowitzki, Dwayne Wade, Pau Gasol, Tony Parker, head coach Greg Popovich is getting in this year, as well as Becky Hammond, who is the current Las Vegas Aces head coach. So that's the NBA class of 2023 uh, for the Basketball Hall of Fame. Any problems with any of this? No, it's, it's strong, solid class, solid strong class. Pop gets in there, yeah. I, I like it. it's it's a good group. Yeah, yeah. There no Philly, no real Philly connections with any of them. So, anyway, well, listen. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to our callers. Thanks to Tim Bontemps from ESPN. Thank you to Jeff McLean. Thank you to my partner Glenn Mack. Now, Go Birds Radio is coming up next with James Seltzer and Elliot Shore Parks. Talk to you later. You're listening to WIP. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.